Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. I'm a fan of classic movies. Hello and welcome to Overlapping Dialogue, a podcast of double features dedicated to programming the finest, most eclectic, and downright bizarre film pairings and cataloging the discussions that ensue. We're your gruesome twosome, Kyle and Levi Huffman. I'm Kyle. I'm Levi. And here we are. Spooktober Spooktacular is over, but don't worry. We're now moving on to Noir-vember. Although although next episode is not going to be Noirs at all. But that's okay. Today, we're doing The Stranger from 1946 and The Lady from Shanghai from 1947. Two late 40s Noirs from Mr. Orson Welles. One of the, you know, preeminent names not only of classic Hollywood, but film in general. We've skirted around talking about Wells here or there, but here we are. Going to kind of do two of his movies Wells. proper. Yeah. Um, how you doing, Levi? I'm all right. I'm actually happy that uh, we're not doing November all, all November. because Yeah, Levi's got a crazy. little bit of a... Um, yeah, we talked about this, I think, maybe in the past. It would just be, checkered you know, uh, yeah. history with noir. Checkered history, that's yeah. funny. Um, yeah, I mean, I would be like, uh, I would just be like Dennis Hopper in that one scene with Nicholas Ray in, uh, uh, American Friend. I'm confused! <laughs> like, because literally every noir is just like, this happens, and then actually this was happening all along. And it's just like, I don't know, it's interesting to me, there's a whole kind of art form, and I'm just gonna call it an art form, noir in itself is its own art form, almost. Uh, it's that, certainly its own medium that just function film. That just functions on, well, in comic books yeah. or whatever. Uh, it just functions on a lack of uh, of sense in every way. Um, yeah, I mean, it was at that time a pretty surreal. Yeah, which people might rather ice at this now in terms of it's very what we imagine classic Hollywood to be, but it it pushed the classic Hollywood style yeah. in a lot of ways for well, better and for well, worse in some I, and, ways. And noir ultimately is asking us to, uh, well, and also, well, I don't know where this comes from. I, I think. Partly, the the nicer version of, of it is to say that uh, I think in a lot of noir is wanting to replicate the feeling of confusion over what is mostly in these femme fatale stories, or as Nico once saw, got a femme fatale. Yeah. That's what she sounds like. <laughs> um, but not uh, Nico Bellic, but Nico Belli. Yeah. Um, <laughs> imagine her reading Nico lines, or Nico <laughs> reading her lines. Too. Or yeah. <laughs> we're not even going to attempt yeah. that now. We'll do that later. Um, off air. But well, as you go. said, it's stylistically trying to represent that confusion, moral ambiguity. Of like, am I in love with this woman or or should I put her away? Like, or maybe both. Or, or yeah. it's just uh, the best 
possible cinematic uh, exemplification of what it's like to be drunk as hell all the time as an alcoholic. I'm not really sure which it is. It could be both. Well, uh, I think, you but, know, I, I'm more of a fan of noir than Levi is, generally speaking. Um, but the more, and I know you would agree with this too, the more of them you watch, the more you realize that noir is not just always the detective story. I feel like that's the yeah. the stereotype. No, because of, The Stranger is one of the best, we'll go ahead and say, because it actually is a story that makes sense. It it, were, it I mean, It's a lot like Notorious in that way, that also being kind of a noir, mm-hmm. a World War Two noir. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. But I mean, I, but I think when people think of noir, even people that aren't super familiar with it as a genre or as a medium... They think of like the Maltese Falcon or the Big Sleep, which are both movies that I quite like, especially the Big Sleep. Um, but are detective-driven stories. They have the femme fatale. They maybe have, have a, a MacGuffin. Have a MacGuffin. Yeah. Are black and white. Uh, of course, like most movies of classic Hollywood era in the forties, have this cynicism about themselves. I mean, I think you know. Most people would think of Humphrey Bogart as almost a prototypical noir actor, and he definitely came along at a time where, also, they're more you know early on they were more complicated gangster movies uh, that came from that tradition. Obviously, they're much more plot heavy than those are, and and that's another thing too, as you were hinting at, is that the plots in many of these movies are very all over the place, yeah, very well, see, chaotic, and yeah. definitely laid from Shanghai, I think. And, oh, but yeah. it's still quite good, but it's, yeah. a, it's an exemplification of that. Of the two, it's more of that. Yeah, it's a more basic noir um, in that way. Um, I want to speak briefly, though, about... I, I didn't think we were going to talk this much about noir or so early on in, in the context of noir itself. Yeah. Because we've talked about that before. Uh, but The Big Sleep is a movie that I, frankly, I want to see it again, but I don't get as much as other people do because I watch that, and I'm like, I literally have no clue what's going on at all. Because when I watch, now, as much as I love style in movies and mood and atmosphere, I am a very plot-oriented person. Or, when I well, watch maybe a even movie, story, or, I think, would be another yes, way to phrase that. Uh, or that, uh, yeah. yeah. But I want to know what's going on. Yeah. I don't like walking out of a movie and coming back in and being like, oh, what's going on now? Like, Unless you know, it's like much more like implicitly surreal right. or abstract. Yeah. But, but like, a movie like that is also... Um, a classic Hollywood movie, so yeah. above all else, it's trying to and supposed to tell a story right. is the primary But So goal. I guess what I'm trying to say is like Raymond Chandler, for example, who I know worked, who wrote the novel and then worked partially on the movie. Uh, who all was it that worked on that movie? He's like kind of a murder's row of people, I remember. Um, and they turned in that kind of did work. Faulkner, um, was he a name? That's was what I was going to say. So imagine him writing his like stream of consciousness and then they're all like, I don't know, yeah, Faulkner... Lee Brackett and Jules Furman, who are all like really big names of screenwriters, especially Lee Brackett, also who later wrote uh, uh, early draft of The Empire Strikes Back, right. which is most and wrote Rio Bravo and The Long Goodbye. Um, a lot of huge movies. Yeah, too. and so I don't know. It's like I don't want to just rip that movie for no reason. But now that you brought it up because I've seen it the once, and it's I mean it's a Howard Hawks movie. Of course, it's going to be well made, and it's got Bogart and Bacall in it, so it's. It's great in that way. But I don't know. You look at that list of screenwriters, and you see Chandler's name there, too, and you're like, oh, okay, so what was any of that? Mm-hmm. Nobody knew. It's like, I think Raymond Chandler was once asked by them, who did this? He said, oh, I don't know. And it's like, yeah. what do you mean you don't know? You wrote the book. Yeah. And it's just this, uh, it's just, I don't know. A lot of noir, to me, is an allowance and an apology for people to just be alcoholic hack storytellers. I'm sorry, that's just what it is. It's like... 
oh, it's not about that. Well, what, is, what the hell is it about then? You know? Uh, I, and I would like, mostly agree with um, you rolling your eyes at that. Yeah. I think for me, one reason I really love The Big Sleep is just the execution of style mm-hmm. is so yeah. brilliant. And that was directed by, of course, Howard Hawks, who did some better movies, by the way, oh, than yeah. just that. Yeah. Um, to me, only angel have only angels have wings just for one, which came out around the same. Two time, of my but, favorite noirs yeah. um, are Key Largo and White Heat, and what I love about both those movies are they're basically kind of sort of White Heat, even more explicitly the gangster, gangster movie, movie yeah. but with like in a in a noir set, like in a yeah. more noir world, and that might seem like well, it's kind of the same thing, right? But there's a level of moral complication that noir brings that I really love the and they're also very simplistic stories in a good way right I mean Key Largo is like we're all stuck in this one place there's a gangster here he's messing it up White Heat is gangsters getting ready to go down you know what I mean I think noir usually works best and I think this is why The Stranger is one of the better noirs when it's like it's got that atmosphere but it also has a fairly simplistic like story Detour that you can one. hang it. Oh, Detour is yeah. one of That's the best. That's like the best, best, I think, of them all, probably. Uh, but, but yeah. like, I love, again, I love Key Largo and White Heat because they also get to be A-plus-plus performance pieces for their leads. Of course, mm-hmm. James Cagney and White Heat and um, Humphrey yeah. Bogart and um, Key yeah. Largo. And they both, you know, Key Largo, he was like... Um, uh, like a war veteran, and so there's that post World War II vibe to it. Um, it was in the late forties, right? Yeah, I think that was forty eight. Uh, so it was. A yeah, I didn't remember. Um, I do think Detour is one of the best, and I th- and I'll see what you think of this. And you're one of the biggest Vertigo fans ever, I know. But I think Vertigo to me is the logical end of noir in terms yeah. of the original slate of movies and that movie's so brilliant and it's not just a noir but i feel like it's the greatest noir yeah. of all because also a fairly simplistic story now there are some plot dynamics that you have to follow throughout but once you the more you watch it the more you fall under the spell of the movie and are not caught up when the um, the MacGuffin or the detective aspects of it obviously hitchcock thrived in Making, but he's also such a huge director. I think sometimes his work is seen outside of noir, but in many ways he was making noirs throughout that same period, and some more explicitly than others. But what? Do, how do you categorize Vertigo as a noir? Yeah, or in it, relation it to is. Noir? It is, and I think why it's the best noir, and I don't normally think of it as that, although it is. That's another thing: is that movie does everything it can to fool you into thinking it's not a noir. It's in color. Not that right. noirs can't be in color, but especially but, that but time, mostly they were. Black yeah, they were black because yeah. they thrive on black and white. That's the whole thing. Uh, is in color. It's also kind of maybe a horror or thriller, depending on, oh, she's literally possessed by a ghost, which, spoiler, if you don't know, is not true. Yeah. Um, but it plays with that tension but, right. throughout. And, but what works so well about it, like I said, it, it, it has a plot that is easy to follow, but then it does by the, not even, just a little over halfway through the movie, like two-thirds, tells you, oh, this is actually what happened. But that's not really important. Now uh, what's important is, how far is this man going to take this obsession? Yeah. How far is this woman going to allow him to take this obsession? How obsessed is she with him? And that's the whole that's the whole point of the movie. And that's what every noir ever has tried to do. But Hitchcock was lucky enough and fortunate enough to come at the end of all of that and say, okay, let me now do what we've all been spinning our wheels doing for like 30 years at this point. And almost. I, I think like, too, like... You know, uh, 
I think, like, as far as classic noirs go in terms of being more noir-ish explicitly, I think Double Indemnity is quite strong, and I think that I do deserves like that. its place towards even, the top of the pantheon yes, of noir. Even as more of a kind of, eh, like, person about Billy Wilder, I think that is really good. Uh, let me just look at another list here. Now, there's a lot of these I still want to see, like, DOA. Uh, I quite like the Big yeah. Heat. I thought that was really was good. good. But that's also because it's got Glenn Ford and it's a Fritz Lang movie, so uh, it's automatically going to have this like propulsion and this anger. That's one of just the meanest movies I've ever seen. That's yeah. just so like wow. Um, but yeah, D two are obviously mentions one of the best, and then of course you know there's there's other countries have done versions of noir, and and even Breathless is a version of that in its own way. Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean now we we've now noirs, lived but... in a deeper era of neo noir than yes. we have even noir. Yeah, I mean we've talked about Basic Instinct and uh, and James Elroy being a version of that now. Yeah, say Fight Club is a version of that. Lost Highway, mm-hmm. that's a great one. I never I mean, even thought of Fight Club as one, but I, yeah. it is actually uh, yeah. neo noir. Um, Big Lebowski, which is also in the law, the uh, uh, long goodbye. Mm-hmm. Um. I think we, yeah, we talked about body heat in the past on here, I think, yeah. too. And Trouble in Mind, that's great. I mean, but yeah, so we could go on and on and on. But there are great versions of that, but to me, oh, and of course, In a Lonely Place, I mean, that's got to be like yeah, in right. the top that's, three. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I mean. But wouldn't you yeah. agree? I think a lot of the best noirs, when I think of them, yeah. uh, when I think of Vertigo, when I think of The Stranger, when mm-hmm. I think of Detour, um, uh, White Heat, Key Largo, some of those movies, Mm -hmm. that the most fascinating thing about all those noirs are like the simplicity of the story on top of the performance, on top of the atmosphere. Mildred Pierce also is debatably a noir, depending on how you want to categorize it. And and that there might be mysteries abound, but they're not the most plot, not the most plot heavy, you know, things. Right. Kiss Me Deadly is another one. Yeah, um, that's really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, Touch of Evil, of course. We'll talk more about Touch of Evil here in a little bit when we get back to that. But yeah, that's just to say, I think that these are these movies to me represent noir at its best, and not noir at its worst, but at its most like mm, okay, yeah. Well, especially like, Stranger uh, uh, Lady from Shanghai. That's me. what I'm saying. Uh, yeah, is I think the cla- like one of the classic noirs in terms of highs and lows right. and again overall it's a well executed version but mm-hmm. before we get into those movies specifically we got to get into a fairly fairly quick but nonetheless delicious blue plate special hi audrey Mama. have a cup of coffee please sure i'll have what she's had Your next and unwanted plan of the apes is rain here. Doesn't it feel like a throwback to be talking about Planet of the Apes? Yeah, it here does. Again? It's funny because I was just thinking, I was like, you know, I'd like to watch through those again. And I was like, didn't we just do that? It's it been back like in two the years golden ago. age of 2021. Yeah, it's been now. like two years, but yeah. So, uh, new- yeah, I don't want to sound too negative up front by saying nobody wants it because clearly everybody does. 
But it also, to me, doesn't feel like it's been that terribly long since War for the Planet of the Apes. Maybe that's just come out again. Twenty seventeen. It's been a while. But that doesn't feel that long That'll ago. That'll be to seven me. years, I guess, yeah. between that and when the new one I guess because COVID kind of sped up time and it's kind of we've been in this limbo, but like, yeah. I don't know. So there's a new trailer recently, recently released. Say that five times fast. For recently Kingdom. Released, recent re- yeah. yeah. <laughs> Dang it. I was going to be like, oh, I'm going to dunk on you. And then, and then yeah. Uh, Kingdom of I will the Planet be in Wimbinana or, or <laughs> how you say his name. <laughs> the sorry. guy for the Spurs, though. Yeah. Uh, Kingdom. Wimby, as they call yeah. him. I'll pay you like, for a basketball today. For <laughs> oh, that's wimpy. Sorry, <laughs> Kingdom anyway. of the Planet of the Apes. Um, I, we I think we did mention this on the horizon when we were at the end of. Yeah, we talked about uh, the, part, the the fact that West Ball was going to make one. Um, so Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the trailer just got released. Um, it's going to be coming out release. Uh, next summer. Next summer, I think in May. For immediate release. Uh, right. in twenty twenty four. Sure. Yes. You say sure, like is it or is it I mean, not? We'll see. Uh, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Um, Wi-Fi is not working. Yeah, but that's all right. Uh, the apes are in control. Um, well, th- I wish mean, they were. We're not one to break down trailers in depth and don't no, expect that here. Yeah. Um, let's read the premise. What, maybe. Uh, first. Yeah. Let's see. Uh, the premise: uh, Generations after the events of War of the Planet of the Apes. Many ape clans have emerged in the oasis to which Caesar led his fellow apes, while humans have regressed into a feral state. When the ape leader Proximus Caesar perverts the teachings uh, of Caesar to enslave other clans in search of the last traces of a secret human technology, ape Noah embarks on a journey to find freedom alongside a young human woman named May. Um, Interestingly enough, also, like, practically all of these actors... Yeah. Who are going to be obviously mo capped to look like apes? Not really. I don't know. Really know any of them. Is Andy uh, Circus not one of them? He's no. He's wow. Not, he's not on here. That's big. I mean, he was Caesar, so I guess they're. Yeah. He's dead now. So. Well, but still, I mean. Yeah, William H yeah. Macy. He doesn't. He might be one of the main few humans in the movie. Yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um. Again, judging by the film Twitter reaction to this, uh, which is a specific community, I'm not yeah. going to say that's a. Uh, for you know a representation of what everybody thinks, but was pretty positive or yeah. at least oh yeah let's have more apes movies, um, and you know I think obviously we're gonna see it and we're gonna have an opinion on it and we'll probably one day be doing a commentary when of it Blu-ray to comes out to go yeah. into you know we'll have the to old get theme, into yeah that blue plate special. Hi Audrey, Norma, have a cup of coffee please. Sure. Anyway, just to reintroduce that. Um, this this second part of the Blue Plate special is rain here. All right, continue anyway. Uh, again, I thought it looked fine. Yeah. I thought it looked, I mean, it's one of those things, visually, of course, it looks fantastic. Yeah. It does get to the heart of part of my thing with the newer movies that we talked about way back when is I kind of miss the, the dressing up in apes. I, well, I get it. And, well, it's not realistic. Yeah. Whole thing's a friggin' uh sci-fi parable anyways it ain't good well let me do i know you know this i'm not saying you're wrong you know this i know you're that i'm not saying you're wrong but i mean it's obvious that's never going to happen again so it's like you know i'm just saying so that's one of those things i don't even and i guess one could just say well we already got all that and so let's move on and you know there's a point to which i actually respect that idea um, but it look, I mean, in one of the few positive things we had to say about the Tim Burton remake was how good that yeah. looked. Yeah, I mean, the because that because you'd even think by two thousands yeah. era, two thousand one. Yeah, out, you would think even by then that it'd be like 
Mm, yeah, that don't look that good. But now, even still, it's like, oh wow, that. Looks I remember really in that good. episode like, we really ripped Mark Wahlberg a new one. I remember. Oh yeah. The whole intro. Oh yeah. Well yeah, cause yeah, we talked about <laughs> I that forever. About that until yeah, now. <laughs> yeah. But uh, well, I mean, he's a scumbag, so yeah. it's like whatever. Um, I will say but, I like that this is moving in the direction of like, oh, guess what? All these apes aren't gonna get along. Yeah. I, because I feel like sometimes I listen to the fans of the newest movies. Like delighting, yeah. Get let the apes get the humans. It's like, oh, so you think they're all just gonna get along? I mean, I think the whole point in the arc of this ultimately is probably gonna be they're gonna replicate many of humanity's yeah. mistakes in terms of well, their and own there was there were versions of that. There were versions of that with the uh, rocket in those newer yeah. ones. But I feel like they and they did versions of that too in the original movies. But I feel like we've never really gotten no, a even good you, version of that. If you think like, about even the originals, yeah. they were like apes versus humans, and so hopefully this can be ape on ape with the third element of the humans returning, and we're probably going to have a version of Taylor and astronauts coming back from space. You know, a version yeah. of replicating what the original movies were, had. So. Um, and that way, you know, I'll say this I'm about that interested. trailer. I like that they were straight up speaking English. It wasn't like, yeah, it yeah, was yeah. like a beautiful day or whatever that one said. I thought was funny. It's like, yeah, I want more of that. I want them just speaking English at this point because it's or whatever like, language it yeah, is or whatever, whatever, you know, yeah. right? Because it's like enough of that. They need to be talking like and so, like people. If you the know? arc of these new movies is that they're going to replicate humanity's mistakes and then also face off against humanity, but also themselves, I actually think that's a promising. Yeah, I'll say this: thing, uh, seeing know? the trailer, I just saw the trailer for the first time like five minutes ago, or when we yeah. right before, and I was impressed by like, oh, this actually looks fine enough, like yeah. you know, because I have no faith in it to the point where it'll probably be all right. But this is also coming off the fact that we've lost Matt Reeves; he's not making it now. And it looked really good, I'll say, as far as the way it looked. But you can tell to, oh, yeah, Matt Reeves ain't making this. So I will say, but I do like that it's a little thing, brighter. I was going to say that. Like, there, yeah. One thing about Matt Reeves' movies, they were a little bit too dark. So I do like this, that it's brighter and sunnier. We just need more color in movies anyway. Mm-hmm. Especially so, in blockbusters. Yeah. Right. So, I, mean, I think that's one yeah. thing, honestly, that Barbie was... One of the reasons it was a success above it being this brand. And that's I think thing, why people love is that. People yeah. want to see more yeah. colorful movies. I mean, and I think that's I, why people love Avatar so much yeah. too, because those uh, are like. I mean, it's I very monochromatic. I did actually point, think but, about this yeah. as being partially inspired by Avatar as well yeah. as on a visual level, which I uh-huh. think is a good thing. I don't yeah. think it's a bad thing, right. but um, so I'm actually like cautiously optimistic. I think if you know because. This goes back to one of my central problems with what I like, quite like the new trilogy overall. If it's this human versus ape thing, and, and naturally so much of the audience, just because of their own contempt for humanity, are going to naturally side with the apes, that actually makes it a very simplistic uh, conflict that I hope these movies moving forward ratchet up and make more complicated. Because I think the more you make that complicated the better because if it's just humans versus apes we've already seen this so many times and so give me something and there's part and and i and yeah and this is gonna sound like oh you're just pulling for the bad guy but in a lot of these movies there's stuff where the apes are like raiding and killing people where i'm kind of like feel like yeah this is like i want to see i want to see the humans do better than that you know what i mean and it's like not that I don't divorce myself from being a human being and because, I mean, that's the point of these movies is we're supposed to identify more with the apes than the humans. But there are times where I'm like, yeah, no, I I want to, like, I, I feel 
and I think this is a positive thing towards the movie, I feel kind of violated by watching apes kill human beings. Like, mm-hmm. you know. I do too. Yeah. And I think that's a natural thing that a lot of people who watch these movies don't even admit to. Yeah. Um, but the, I like the feeling of that, though, in the sense of, like, it makes me, it puts me in this place that makes me feel weird about that. Um, and I do think these movies yeah. try to make statements about um, humanity versus nature, meaning right. humans versus not only apes, but nature in general is a climate change allegory, which is certainly a context that would not have been in the 60s and 70s as much yeah. as a newer uh, take on it. But ultimately, sci-fi, on a fundamental level, I don't care if you're with aliens, I don't care if you're with apes or whatever, is about human conflict, anthropomorphizing real human yeah. concerns and real human divides. And I think sometimes these movies, by making these digital apes that look like real apes, they make people forget or not understand or themselves get trapped into it being this man versus nature yeah. conflict that to me is not as interesting because, as replicating yeah. a human versus because human Because animal divide. conflicts are very, are literally one note basic survive and that's literally yeah. all it is and procreate. Yeah. And so all the conflicts that come as a result of that are literally just besting each other in 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 violence and that's yeah. literally all it is. And so and I think a lot of people want to boil human beings down to that too. Mm-hmm. Um but there's a lot more to it than that, and and so yeah, I agree. I think that people forget that with these, and they want to make it very man versus nature centric, which is good that these movies are doing that because that's the concern now. Not as much, you know, nuclear war or something that I wish they would return to more, which is the racism allegory of these, which I feel like they sometimes hit on, but well, obviously not back a whole in the seventies, it was a more yeah more omnipresent even than it is now certainly right. because the newer movies are not oriented in that fashion it's more right. about this more natural yeah. uh, divide but to act like that's not still a concern right. is its own problem sure. too is what I'm saying but yeah so like yeah I don't know but yeah it, it looks alright I mean of course I'm gonna want to go see a Planet of the Apes movie over anything else so it's like cool I think it's also just because people are wanting uh, and this is maybe you want to talk about this too as another blue crate blue plate special thing i don't know but um about uh the whole i've been kind of confused about this maybe you can explain it. this whole marvel news this week about marvel basically being in shambles can you shed some light on that to me because i never did figure this out i didn't look enough into it so yeah i mean the last so many and almost this almost seems like it's in preparation for the flop of marvels or the yes. marvels or whatever yes. is getting ready to come out the about yeah, when I, even when I when I say out loud Captain Marvel, I'm thinking of what is now called Shazam, three different Captain but, Marvels you know, who live in these different universes. That go, yeah. yeah, so yeah. The, I think honestly that they were trying to get ahead of this. I don't know if it was Variety or Hollywood Reporter did a big cover story. I can't remember who it was. One of the I think trades. it was Variety. I'm Might pretty have sure been Variety. Yeah, did this big cover story about how Marvel has a lot of problems right now because they seem as though they're primarily a TV. Mm-hmm. Franchise and the, the movies have underperformed really since Endgame in a roundabout way. And that's happened to Star Wars too, obviously, because Star Wars has literally disappeared from the movie theater industry totally. So much so, so that they've even yeah. apparently uh, approached uh, Robert Downey Jr. to come back as Iron Man. And that that's a conversation that's being had. As well as um, Scarlett Johansson to come back from Black Widow. Both of them died 
uh, in the recent I didn't Marvel know movies. that Black Widow was dead. That shows you how much I don't pay it was, attention. Was that in the Endgame or the one before that? I can't even remember Well, now. she had that Black Widow movie she was in. There. Well, that was a prequel. Oh, I didn't that know that. That was like a prequel. Oh, that was oh yeah, I guess she did die then. Literally, see, I have no clue. Yeah. See, because that's, well, that's the problem. Like, these movies try to, and I'm going to bring it up again, these movies try to become Heaven's Gate and have all these characters and all these things going on. It's like, But when you don't care about any of them, you're not going to remember who lives and who dies. It just really doesn't matter to you. Like, of course, I remember that Iron Man died because he's Iron Man, I guess, and, and Robert Downey Jr., whatever he's in, is going to make himself the center of attention, which is for good and for ill, I think. Um, I mean, we can't but, underrate him in Oppenheimer. Right, no, that's performances great. Of that. So, yeah, like, I'm And that was honestly that. nice. Oh, you yeah. can act in a real movie yeah. again. Like, I mean, the man who moved the earth. Yeah. Um, but, no, well, I mean, Even that, uh, ironically, even yeah. his character in that is about, I'm going to be the center of attention right, yeah. this person so, off, but I'm going to be and ruined then, as And then result. the great twist is, they didn't, they didn't think about you at all. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But uh, but anyway, just to say that, yeah, that goes to show I literally have no clue because these movies try to make themselves too big and too operatic to the point where it all breaks down narrative and character-wise. I just don't care. No. So anyway, but yeah, they're trying to bring these people back because they know that nobody cares. You know, that is what's fascinating so, about Planet of the Apes is that while Caesar was a, quote, character in these movies, they're all, and there are certain kind of character types that get recycled and a new version of... But on the whole, the appeal of the Planet of the Apes series are apes versus humans. That's just like, and a lot, and some people are like, oh, I don't even need to have seen all of them, and, and it's not. I mean, there is a continuity, but it's not as heavy-handed as mm -hmm. like the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Literally, you Star could Wars watch, you could whatever. watch any one of those new three, and it wouldn't matter. Like, you know. Also, like just to as you said earlier about. Marvel's in shambles and Star Wars. What's next? It's like these are the futures that Disney created for themselves. Yeah. Like, why, why are we at all surprised? Disney put in motion that we're going to make you be tired of these things by just producing them so much uh, to the point where it's like, what's the? What and then is Indiana Jones mean? is dead in the water, no matter what happens, because that didn't make money. And also, well, no one expected that to go anywhere either, because it's like, oh, they bought it with Lucasfilm, and it's just been kind of sitting there. But then to do it and then know that, okay, this is the last Harrison Ford one for real for realsies this time. But then, yeah, nobody, there's just nobody's going to go out and see a Phoebe Waller-Bridge, Indiana Jones movie. That's just not going to happen. So, yeah, um, so, anyway, yeah they've really shot themselves in the foot other with this whole than, Disney Plus Other thing, than so. Oppenheimer and yeah. uh, Barbie, there were no huge winners of the box office this summer, especially. Um, right. So. Well, especially coming off of what a big, massive success, obviously, the Avatar yeah. way of water was. And you can see that there are these franchises that, believe it or not, people are still interested and want to go care about because they don't make them every five minutes. Mm -hmm. um, well, that's another thing about and, Avatar. I mean, we waited, yeah. uh, what was it? Uh, 12 years. 12 years. No, 13, 13 years. 13 years yeah. between them. And, again, we're not like, we're not like, huge Avatar fanboys or anything, but, like, we like the first movie. And I would and say I, I am like, a relatively huge enough James Cameron fan to where yeah. that's going to be a uh, you know, part of that. And but, so, yeah. just less is more, you know? It's yeah. just like, do not keep making the... And, it's funny to say with Avatar 2, less is more, but I know, no, I know yeah, what you mean, I mean to make less as, movies right, yeah. And, but, I mean, there were yeah. a lot of people that were scratching yeah. their heads, like, who's going to care about this? Well, it turns out a lot of people cared when it no, came out. I've and, said uh, this on this podcast multiple times. I don't think, and I think you know this, but I don't think that people, cinephiles know how big that first Avatar movie is for most average people. Yeah. That's like their thing. No, like when 
when I decided, oh, I'm going to show Avatar during lunch, during my first year, when we were watching movies every day during lunch, you wouldn't believe how many kids were like, yes, Avatar, yeah. And, like, had seen it. They'd seen it way more times than me. And I had, you know, as a yeah. cinephile, I'd only seen it, like, twice, I think, before that. And and all the people that I talked to randomly about a year ago that were like, oh, yeah, I'm going to see Avatar 2, yeah. And, like, that is a bit... that And that and you saw the returns. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot... Because a lot of people, I think, for a long time, like to, like to inflate the Avatar box office by saying China and 3D. But I don't think that accounts for the amount of people that went to go see Avatar. Like, you don't just make money off of those two things all on its own. Mm-hmm. Um, so, all that, together with that, the Avatar movies At are... At the holiday ma- season. Yes. Yeah. Are massively big for the average goes people that go to the movie two or three well, times again, a year. Well, again, I think, too, like, like, the, simpl- you know. like uh, the simplicity of the premise and the mm-hmm. idea... A lot of people feel like, oh, I don't gotta watch a billion things to be caught up on it. I can see the first movie and then I'm good to go in. You know what I mean? It's like, and those are not short movies either. They're both three hours long. Yeah. I mean, so uh, yeah. And you know, I don't know. And I think another thing too, people unconsciously are like, this isn't a movie made by committee. James Cameron is one of the few, like, I put auteur with him in slight quotes, but few creative minds in Hollywood that is like, you know he's making all the decisions. Everything's yeah. going to be his decision. It's not going right. to be something that... And I'm not even trying to diss Kathleen Kennedy because she's got a great resume overall. But like, it's not like Kathleen Kennedy telling Ryan Johnson or telling Phil Lord and Chris Miller this or or like Kevin Feig. Uh, tell, no, it's James Cameron. John Landau's there, but it's a James Cameron movie. James Cameron's making all It's a Lightstorm production, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And so, again, I think the simplicity of it is, yeah. again, less is more. I mean, yeah. It, and so, th- as you said, yeah. it is kind of funny to all the resources that go into those movies. No, but I know what you mean. More, but like, yeah. in terms of just narrative, well, it, and he he's got time. a certain yeah. genius when right. it comes to narrative we've talked about titanic ad nauseum on this podcast and had a whole podcast about it funny enough it was mentioned in our, our, preacher our service sermon today, today yeah. so we thinking about it but um the simplicity of that story amidst the spectacle and it's what still, people want right. from and it was able to tell the like story that. of the gilded age and robber baron europe and america and and industrialism and then also the and, end of the 20th century right, at that point yeah when it was made pre-world war one mm-hmm. uh uh imperialism just so yeah a lot of ideas and then oh but it's a love story about the one of the biggest tragedies in world history of this massive that was already a big like, deal but now right. for future generations that movie will definitively mm-hmm. define the cultural memory of that and although it has people that are made up is about as good as you can get of a historical version of that on screen i mean it's pretty direct yeah. um and so yeah that's all to also to say that 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 people want to see things like this and and i'll say too but at the same time they don't because i got into a minor twitter spat with someone i don't even know a couple well you know back uh, about a week ago they had tweeted about how many younger people were going to see Killers of the Flower Moon? And uh, and I said, I said something like, "Well, that, I think that like the percentage of people going to see it, I guess, is what I mean." And I kind of said, "Well, 
I don't remember exactly what I said, but I basically like, well, I think that's kind of a generalization because we all know good and well that most young people are not going to go see Kills of the Fire Moon. Let's just get that out of the way. And most old people aren't, older people aren't either. And I said, and since box office overall has not been all that great, but I yeah. mean, again, that box office was just kind of a bonus for Apple, who knew that yeah. they, what they were funding, and that it was I think it passed a hundred million this week. Is that right? I can't remember what, it was uh, which is was a surprise to me. It made that much money. Um, but that yeah, I mean, like, and that's not to say that people aren't going to see it, you know. But it's, it's made like, over a hundred million. Yeah, but now. I'm just like, no, that's not really an accurate assumption that. Because they said the same thing about Oppenheimer, too. That, oh, all the young people came out to see that. Well, that was also because they went out to see Barbie. So it's like, and it was a meme. So it's like, they want to keep acting like, oh, young people want to go to the movies. Like, I don't think that's totally an accurate, well, like... people who are around young people a lot. Right. I, yeah, I think no, that's what I'm saying. agree that and, that's not... And I mentioned, you know, oh, I teach middle schoolers, and I, and they're like, well, we're not talking about middle... The person who yeah. replied back, we're not talking about middle schoolers. Yeah. We're talking about... Oh, and I'm like, are they, uh, are they like, are they referring to like people in their late teens, early twenties? Yeah. And I'm like, about? no, no, no. But I was like, no, no, idiot. I said it nicer than this. I said, well, you are correct that I am not discussing that, or that that is not what's being discussed. I was like, but that's the future of what those people are going to be, mm-hmm. and it ain't that different from what it was when they were kids, which was only about five, ten years ago. So, um, yeah, that whole assumption is just really flawed and stupid. Like, I, I most people are not going out to movies to care. But it has been seen very clearly that these movies like Flash, like, I'm not even going to count Indiana Jones because that's so outside of anything of just wilds I'd even made. Um, but Flash and the Marvels movies and uh, this the Marvels and Marvel movies in general and the Star, basically Star Wars not existing um, in, like, a, you know, like I said, a multiplex space, that, yeah, it's shown that, yeah, people are just getting tired of that and then these other things they're more interested in. So, uh... Because, I mean, another really big... I don't even know how much it actually made. I have to go back and look and see where it is on the list. But, I mean, a movie like Cocaine Bear, for yeah. example, made a lot of money at the beginning of the year. You know why? Because it was a dumb little old bear on cocaine movie and people want to go see that. Like, it's not that complicated to figure out what people want to go see. Yeah. But they act like it is. They mm-hmm. think it is. And, they, and then they get twisted in these knots about that to the point where then nobody's making money anywhere because nothing's getting made. So, mm-hmm. and nothing literally is getting made right now. Um, and that's another thing that's interesting, too, is the way that people have acted about Dune, which I'm a massive fan of, as we all know. But everybody's acting about that second one like, oh, my God, we've been cheated out of that. And it's like nobody is going to go see that movie. It's going to make no money. Yeah. And the fact that everybody's thinking that Dune Messiah is going to be even made at all is hilarious. I just think that. And I'm not saying all this with any glee or happiness. Of course I would rather that happen than not. But that's just a totally, literally the unreality someone has to live in to believe that a movie that barely made its money in the first place was even a question over whether a second one was going to be made is then, after these massively long strikes, which has been pushed back three or four times, going to make any sort of money that would lead anyone to believe that any more of those movies are going to get made is smoking crack. Like, they're crazy. That just is nuts to me. So so I'm just saying that now, and when I'm wrong, <laughs> we can all come back and we'll replay this moment for posterity. Yeah. Um. But that's just crazy town, if anybody thinks that that's going to happen. So that is also to speak to the sadness of 
okay, yeah, that movies like this aren't getting made that much, and the fact that even something as halfway maybe good-looking as Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes yeah. is even... People are like, oh, whoa, look at that. Like, you know, yeah. Um, when, like, a million of those movies have been made, mm-hmm. too. Um, and so... Yeah, I don't know. That, and the fact that we're surprised that that original Dune didn't make money, it's literally a movie version of Dune. Mm-hmm. Like, why would anybody, why would most people go see that? Like, yeah. It was literally described by a student I had as, oh, boring Star Wars. So, And I'm like, yeah, basically. Mm-hmm. Not that I agree with that, but I think that's a pretty good uh, perception, perception of, what of what most people think that is. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, anyway. So anyway, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes will come out yeah. next summer, uh, and again, we'll we'll probably have takes on it when it comes out, and then we'll definitely be doing a commentary to add right. it to our Planet of the Apes yeah. series. But we got to go back in time, 1946. Here is the trailer for The Stranger. failing to speak, you become a part of the crime. But I'm already a part of it. Because I'm a part of you. Gee, Mr. Wilson, you must be wrong. Mary wouldn't fall in love with that kind of a man. Well, I hope I am wrong, Noah, but... That's the way it is. People can't help who they fall in love with. What do you want? I came to kill you. You are a fool. When they find me, they'll know you're still here. But darling, you're on the verge of a breakdown. Any child could see you'd wind up killing yourself. Kill me, I wanted. I couldn't face life knowing what I've been to you and what I've done to Noah. But when you kill me, don't touch me with your hand. I'm just imagining Edward G. Robinson saying, we have to go back. We have yeah. to go back. Yeah. <laughs> How would Orson Welles say that? His blood will be on your hands. Um, blood will be on your hands. Um, anyway, yeah. So The Stranger is a 1946 American thriller film noir directed and co-written by Orson Welles starring Edward G. Robinson, Loretta Young, and Orson Welles. It's Welles' third completed feature film as director and his first film noir. I thought there was a movie in there in between Magnificent Ambersons and this. Um, is that surprising to me? It's not. Yeah. Um, it centers on a war crimes investigator tracking a high-ranking Nazi fugitive to a Connecticut town. It's the first Hollywood film to present documentary footage of the Holocaust. Um, it actually, randomly, another important thing, it entered the public domain. So it's actually randomly a public domain movie. Um, one of the better films in the public domain, probably. Um, when its copyright was not renewed. So basically... 
This is about Edward G. Robinson is uh, a, uh, like I said, a war crimes investigator. He's literally only known as Mr. Wilson in the movie. He never has a first name. Yeah. Um, searching for this uh, Nazi fugitive called Franz Kindler, who was actually one of the primary uh, kind of instigators and, and masterminds of the Holocaust. Um, and that he is hiding somewhere in the world. They're not really sure where. Uh, and that they are able to track him to a small town in Connecticut where he is uh, basically acting like he is this uh, history professor named Charles Rankin um, at this yeah prep school. Uh, so actually it's kind of more of a uh, uh, like a high school. It's mm-hmm. only. Um, and uh, that he goes there to find him and at first... Uh, they're not totally sure if it is him or not, but that ultimately it proves to be. And then that's what I thought most of the movie would be about. But actually, a good about halfway through, it's all basically figured out by the powers that be that he is who he says he is, or he is not who he says yeah. he is. But then the whole movie becomes about very surprisingly to me, Loretta Young as his wife, uh, newlywed wife, grappling with the fact that he may or may not be a Nazi. And leading to her overall denial of this fact for the majority of the time, uh, which and then the movie becomes about totally other things that I found even more fascinating than the rest of the movie, which was good. But I was glad that it turned into those things instead, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Do you want to go through the cast? Yeah, yeah, we can do that quickly. Pretty quick, yeah. Okay, so obviously Orson Welles as Franz Kindler slash Professor Charles Rankin. We've talked about him a lot as a director. And we can talk about that throughout both these movies. But what what's your perception of him as an actor? Well, I in think in particular with most of the best Orson Welles performances I can think of, I think his lane is specifically that he's so great at playing is handsome, uh, devil may care attitude that is secretly actually the walls are closing in on, and that he's going to be found out, and mm-hmm. then a lot of his confidence is going to be blown up in his face. If you think about obviously. Charles Foster Kane and um, Citizen Kane. Um, you think of him in the Third Man, of course. The Third yeah. Man, which he didn't direct, uh, but he's it's very Wellesian in general and yeah. kind of inspired by Wells. Hardly handsome, but you think of him in um, uh, Touch of Evil. Mm-hmm. You know, his grotesque version of who he is in that. Um, that again, I think a lot of his best performances were like. This man who seems so wise and ahead of everybody else, but actually the walls are closing in on him. I think that in his own way, that that the ability for him to kind of um, self de- uh, you know self de- deprecate himself on screen, I think, is one of his most interesting qualities in terms of as an actor, and in particular as an actor in the movies that he directed. Yeah. Um. And again, I think he's terrific in this as a guy who's trying to play it cool and trying to act like he's, uh, you know, th- there's nothing to hide, but actually the whole time there's always somebody right around the corner, whether it right. be Robinson, whether it be his wife, whatever it is. Um, I just think he's terrific at that mm-hmm. in this. Uh, what do you think of him as an actor? Yeah, I mean, because that's honestly uh, what he should be, I think, more remembered as anyway, uh, is an actor because it, it's so much, I mean, other than Charlie Chaplin or like Edward Van or not Edward Van Sloan, uh oh gosh, what's his name? He made Greed. 
uh, oh Eric von Stronheim. Eric von Stronheim. Yeah, uh, and there were others of this also, but just uh, actor directors was not as common, obviously, at the time. Uh, Millie S. did a little bit of that, but yeah. that's even way more complicated than just saying that. Um, but I guess that was a lot more common with comedy directors uh, like Buster Keaton and, and yeah. Charlie Chaplin or uh, even uh, Fatty Arbuckle. Yeah. Um, Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle. <laughs> um, but, the, yeah, to see... A an actor become a, a director in his own way was was big back then. I think that's another thing why a lot of people in the industry were so hostile to Wells at the time. Also, uh, more than likely, was that he wa- he wanted to be an actor and director and writer, and uh, that that was seen as so arrogant by you know the the studios in general. Yeah. Um, thankfully, all of it worked out for him, but I feel like there could have been, and I think everybody says this, but there could have been so much more from Wales in Hollywood, yeah. um, and it's just really a, a shame that there wasn't. Not to say that he couldn't have been a little less arrogant, Yeah. either. He's that, clearly a very this, arrogant yeah. man. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, obviously, a total genius. Um, so in that way, I, it, it, it pains me that there isn't more of a focus on his acting. I feel like, because that's what he started out as in the theater, anyway. And, and on the radio. And, and on radio. Because he's just got that voice of yeah. a generation, you know. Um, but the, I think in this, uh, there I will say, just to criticize the movie slightly, I feel like there are some versions of that here that I'm... I find out... I, and maybe it's just because he's got this American accent. It's hard for me to believe, oh, he's a Nazi war criminal throughout. Yeah. Uh, because uh, there's not as much expostulation on that, I suppose. Yeah. Um, it feels like everybody else is putting accusations towards him or just speaking facts towards him that he then has to react to yeah. and kind of hide himself from. I don't feel like that's always the best performance in that way. Um, so in that way, I don't think he gives the performance of a lifetime here. Yeah. I think in general he's really great. I mean, obviously him as Charles Foster Kane is great. Mm-hmm. Him uh, in uh, even Othello is great. Um, I feel like he always, when he acted in other people's movies, he was always great too. Mm-hmm. Obviously with The Third Man or yeah. even... Uh, um, oh God, it just escaped me. There was another one I was... Well, I mean, he was in movies like A Safe Place or whatever later, which I haven't seen all that, or, uh, you know, which at that point it became, oh, Orson Welles is in my movie kind of yeah. thing. Um, but obviously there were versions of that where he worked with other people and was great uh, also. But... um, I think he's the, great in Chimes at Midnight, mm-hmm. which... Or, uh, or in Touch of in, Evil we mentioned already, yeah. but yeah. Um but by that point, his even in both of those movies, he's mm-hmm. a little more to the side. He's not right. necessarily the lead as much anymore. Yes. But so anyway, that's all to say that uh, yeah, because then you have Charlton Hiss and playing a Mexican, which is hilarious. Yeah, everybody talks about that. But um, uh, but yeah, that's all just to say he's normally a great actor. I'm not saying he's bad here. I think he's even better here than he is in Lady from Shanghai. Yeah. Um, that's almost like a kabuki sideshow performance anyway yeah. in my own opinion um but uh that yeah that's just sometimes he's i think he's working on the other 
I think he really worked well on those other performances of that he's asking of Loretta Young and Edward G. Robinson than himself. Yeah. Um, particularly Loretta Young. But yeah, I guess we'll speak about Robinson briefly because he basically just plays Edward G. Robinson here, which is fine because Edward G. Robinson's great. But what do you think about him in this as as a for him, what was at this time, and I mean, he had done versions of this before now, and and would go back to it literally with Key Largo the next few years, about two years later. But uh, as a villain, obviously, was what he's always seen more as. Yeah, he'll always uh, be, you know, Little Caesar. Uh, right. You know, him and that. And that was, a you know, that along with Cagney and the Public Enemy were just such huge... Uh, defining gangster uh you know that early gangster movie genre that for many people he was seen as this uh, you know the villain of a generation and yeah. he was in a lot of movies from the 30s but as the 30s turned into the 40s he, he was more a hero in things edward g robinson is an actor in general has grown on me over the years um what was that movie it was the whole town's talking that john ford movie yeah he was in. he was kind of well he played a he played a hero and a villain in that. Yeah, mode, it was like so. a guy that was basically a doppelganger right. for a, a bad gangster yeah. guy, and he'd been mistaken. But he was for much it. more of the. That's kind of a comedic right. uh, thing. But and that, also, his main performance in that also was the good guy. Yeah, that, right. But. Um, but I think he is perfect for this role at this time as this kind of world weary detective who, the whole time, he has literally and figuratively the image of the uh, images of the Holocaust right. in his back pocket. And he's not showing that to anybody. And he kind of withholds that until he, um, shows Wells wife in the movie, those images. And so he has this really great, I don't really want to be here. I'd rather kind of be out of this whole life, especially out of what he's seen from the war and right. from the aftermath with the Holocaust. And so he is really perfect as this detective who, is ingratiating himself in this town to try to track down and figure out where this Nazi is. Right. Um, and so much of the the perversity of the movie is this idea that this that Wells's Nazi is like again immersed himself in this quaint little New England town that he's marrying the daughter of a Supreme Court justice, which still puts him in the proximity of power. And so I think Robinson almost represents. Um, literally and figuratively the ugly truth in terms of I'm going to obviously is the hero, but I'm going to put, I'm going to bring the ugly truth down in this town about just who's marrying into this family. Right. And that I'm going to kind of rip apart this myth, but it's for the better of everybody that the myth be ripped apart. So I think he just represents a really great character in that regard. Right. Um, and again, a character that you don't get a lot of, you don't get a lot of insight outside of him as an investigator, but I think that's fine because with the cachet of who he is, especially this era of Hollywood, he brings with him the the cachet of whoever G. Robinson is into that. Right. So I think in that way he's brilliant mm -hmm. to cast in that in that role at yeah. this time. Yeah, I'll co-sign all that. Loretta Young is Mary Longstreet Rankin. She's the daughter of... Uh, Philip Merivale, who's the, the Supreme Court Justice Adam Longstreet. She calls him by his first name all the time, by the way. It was so strange to me. Um, but uh, what do you think about Loretta Young in this? Because I, I feel think, like she wins the movie. Yeah, she's way. really good because she represents almost the audience. that we yeah. No, no. Her husband or Orson Welles, he can't be a Nazi. He's 
he's too nice and he's too handsome and he's too smart and he's too all the good stuff. And I think, again, so much of the, you know, we know or we know early on as the audience early on that he's not who he says he is. Right. But so much of the tragedy and heartbreak of the movie, to the extent that it exists, rests on her realization, but then also kind of complicity in making sure that he remains uh, unscathed and he remains hidden. Right. You know. What about her works for you in this? Yeah, I mean, I kind of said this in my review of the movie that I wrote for Letterboxd that, to me, she kind of represents the... uh, uh, I think it's a natural progression for her in the movie, let me say that. Uh, The allowance of fascism or the way that fascism survives is by others not wanting to... uh, you know, admit these things to themselves or that these things are wrong or this kind of silent acceptance yeah, of... that kind of uh, double-sided complicity right. that she has with uh, it. And so, obviously, that's a way more complicated version of it here than it was in, I think, real life. I think that most people in Germany were obviously totally fine with these things happening or were fine enough with it to just keep their mouths shut. But she, she does um, kind of represent the conscience of, oh, that can't happen here, though. Right. Can't, you know, and yeah. the, the grim statement that Wells is making as a director in the movie is, oh, yes, it can, and yes, it right. can, and we need to be vigilant yeah. against and that a, type and as of we have discussed, subversion. As we have discussed on air, off air, everywhere, um, is that we were so worried about communism in the late 40s that we let fascism take root in America and it's never really left um, in a lot of ways. And I would not go so far as to call this a fascist nation. I don't, for all its problems, I don't believe this country is like utterly fascist. Um, but there are. Well, I mean, the Second Red Scare did represent a yeah. fascist a second wave of sorts mm-hmm. of the hostility to communism. Yes, yes, and 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 in general, a lot of the. But what more and what hostility I mean, to the left yeah. in general, and more what I mean is those have gotten into such an implicit nature that they don't come out so much in America. They do every so often uh, in like protests, you know, in pro. When there's protests in America, there's always that police presence, and not that there shouldn't be a police presence, but there's always it always leads to looking like Nazism. I mean, that's what it always looks like. All this everybody wearing black and with all these you know bulletproof vests and and guardrails and all that. I mean, that's just inherently fascist imagery. That's, that's what it is, um, and so that rears its ugly head in America, especially the last say about 10 years that's been a particular problem um but the I, I mean i don't like i said i don't want people to walk away from this podcast thinking that this is i think in a fascist nation i feel like there's a lot of fascism in america um but that the the issue is is that was always this focus we had on oh we need to deal with communism because that's what we were always more worried about anyway um and so a kind of a uh a self-fulfilling failure um, anyway, um, of communism, um, and that something that Norman Mailer has said often that I've heard him say and read in print is that fascism, I think, is a natural state for humanity that will consistently survive. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, some of the basis, um, uh, right? Basis because because that's the easiest. Humanity. It's because that's the easiest way to control governments is to just tell people this is the way it's going to be, and if you don't like it, we'll deal with you with violence. Yeah. Um, and so that it's a lot more difficult to actually give people democracy. 
And so as much as we try, that's going to remain. But I think what Wells is saying is, is that, you know, I didn't, he didn't even realize at the time is that, Hey, we need to be remembering this thing is still out there. And, and he even said about him. And it's interesting because he even says this through the character of, uh, that he's playing of that. The only way to deal with the German is annihilation. Like you're literally not going to get rid of that ideology. And, and one of the dead and, giveaway moments, and I remember yeah. when I, I put this scene in last week's or last time's episode in preview for this, is that dinner table scene where uh, he's kind of saying that, well, the the natural order of things is annihilation, and we're all going yeah. towards annihilation. And somebody pointed out like an alternative opinion to like the fascist undercurrents that represented the end of, you know, by the end of World War II, what we defeated, the whole idea, well, Marx presented an alternative opinion. And, you know, he said Marxist wasn't a German, he was a Jew. And that's ultimately what sticks in Robinson's head as this idea that, wait a minute, so... Well, he was a German, but... Well, yeah, so you're saying right. that the German identity has to be totally separate from the Jewish identity, and that in and of itself then, then, is, of course, a if, prejudiced, ethnocentric well, so idea. Many- Jews that were in Germany were seen as literally not German because they were Jewish. And so that idea of, okay, well, they literally are German. They were born in Germany. So, and it, you find that anywhere that, that nativist, uh, attitude you find in America, very much still alive in America today. Um, I, I deal with that constantly every day. Um, Mm -hmm. is that when, and, and sometimes it's not even the most, they're not even meaning it the way it sounds, but it's something that I always make into a learning experience for them. When people say, oh, well, when they'll speak about mostly Hispanic students, they'll say, oh, well, where where are they from? Or oh, they And they joke and they'll say, oh, uh, did you cross the border and need a green card, which always makes me, you know, rightfully angry. But I'll be like, no, they're an American citizen. They yeah. were born in America. They are an American. Yeah. And then they're like, well, what? If you're born in America, you just become a citizen? And I kind of look at them like, well, what are you then? Yeah. Well, you're an American citizen. Where were you born at? Well, well apparently, yeah, what, like, what so. you're what you're uh, what you're trying to make them think about is yeah. that they're defining American Americanness or American citizenship by yeah. whiteness, yeah. you know, or ethnocentrism. Right. You and know. I think they 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 think about that genuinely once I talk to them about it. Um, because probably that's the but, first time they've been even challenged on that idea yeah. before. So, uh, but so like, but yeah, that's something that always it's the same thing. It's like. Oh, they're not Americans. Like, well, they were born here, so they are actually. By the way, um, you know, I think one uh, thing about this but, movie that really sticks out is there's a lot of uh, during the mid mid to late forties through the fifties. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of movies and books and art in general and the culture that was like all about finding the secret communist and oh, there's communists yeah. everywhere and the secret communist. And one of the reasons this movie sticks out in a good way, like a sore thumb, is that it's about the secret fascist, but and that immediately feels apart from so much of the Cold War narrative, both at the time and later, is that the idea that fascism actually are a far greater threat than communism still survived and is literally within America itself and is buried yeah. in America. Well, and I've had, not to go too far into this, but I've had disagreements with people I won't name about, they probably would never even listen to this podcast anyway, but about what was more of a threat, fascism or communism, and this person, of course, said communism because they're more right-wing anyway. Uh because, oh, well, all the wars that happen and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay. So even though that even could possibly be true of, like, the Vietnam War or the Korean War, which, by the way, the United States and Western, you know, 
what would be more right-wing uh, countries instigated far more by being there. Mm-hmm. Um, by saying that also is like, well, also negates the fact that, okay, so fascism was so reviled and so dangerous that in a certain sense, people are like, okay, let's put that over here to the side and not really actually deal with it because it implies too much about ourselves. Yeah. Um, that that has lived on and survived, that it's still... But then it's like almost going back to saying, okay, well, what about all these like prototypical or versions of fascist nations that then fought these communist nations that caused a lot of that violence in themselves or it was a mutual causation? Either way, I don't want to act like it's totally yeah. communism is a great thing because it's not either. Yeah. But that is this lack of equating that I find very frightening, mm-hmm. um, and and an acceptance of oh, fascism isn't it dangerous? Like no, inherently, even by the base of, and you can talk about what communism becomes or what communism ultimately is, but even at its base level of what fascism is as an ideology is far more dangerous than what communism is because even communism at its base says what is a positive message now you can say whatever that whatever it becomes is whatever it becomes yeah but the, at least at least right. uh fascism, for fascism never desires to be that yeah. ever so anyway yeah that's all just to say that i've gotten in conversations with people about that that i didn't even defend myself like i did here because i'm like they're just not even gonna yeah listen anyway um because also they're an older person, so anytime a younger person speaks, they're just going to ignore whatever it is. Yeah. Um. But um. But anyway. So well, they yeah. were also from a past eras that were ripe with that propaganda, anyways. Yeah, right. And, so uh, that's whatever. Yeah. But anyway, that that's all to say that to get back to Loretta Young, mm-hmm. what is so great about her performance is that uh uh this almost like hyperventilating uh defense of a man that she barely even really knows anyway. Yeah, right. Um, which I find interesting. I don't see that so much as a, as a negative in the movie as it is just the reality of like these ideas of, of of matrimony, what that meant in the 1940s. And, oh, I must defend this person and do this. And, and, uh, and you know, an interesting line that kind of is a throwaway is in that is that moment when Edward G. Robinson's like, Oh well, since he actually was here under false pretenses, you won't you won't be legally bound to defend him in court. Like that's even a a genuine concern for anyone involved. Of like, oh well, you don't have to defend him. It's okay. Like, yeah. but it's like, why would you anyway? I'd, yeah. I'd break that bond like that. But that you know that just says yeah. something about that anyway. But mm-hmm. but yeah, she's really great. Like you said, because. Uh, she represents the right. moral complexity of the yeah. movie as a character in a roundabout way. What do we think, too, about the movie's use of Holocaust footage in this? That had to be incredibly shocking, obviously, back in the 40s to see. And it's kind of shot from afar, but you still do get the glimpses of almost a mountain of corpses. Uh, yeah, one, right. Know, and, well, and it's it. different, of course, from Night and Fog, which came about in the next decade. Yeah, I feel like, though, ultimately, obviously, the way that uh, Europe dealt with uh, and European art cinema dealt with the Holocaust was far quicker, far more expedient, and far more uh, in your face about it. Confrontational. Because the, confrontational, because they had to, because it was all right there. Yeah. It was all left behind. It wasn't like America where it was far away from it, and it kind of got beamed to us by way of what what would become television. Yeah. Um, and the yeah, that's a different. So this is different, but still, for people to even see that. And even be within a year of uh, VE Day, 
you know, yeah. or a little bit over a year of VE day. And really in those few months in the summer of 45, ultimately, where they were actually really finding all that stuff and filming it and actually starting to have to deal with it and piece it together um, from both American and British and French perspectives. Yeah. Um, that Yeah, that is still very shocking uh, to see. Um, of course, not like I said, not as much as Night and Fog, for example, or other uh, movies that would come in the, or even like uh, uh, implications of things in like another Elaine Reznos film, Hiroshima uh, uh, Monomore. Yeah. Um, but that yeah. Um, well, I love too in that scene step, that. But. A lot of some of the footage is like just literally shot over Edward G. Robinson's face, like it's being mm-hmm. projected on his face. And again, that represents like that world weariness that he's been carrying with him the whole time about what this is all really about. And we can try to make it about this or that, but yeah. ultimately, I'm going to confront your knowledge of this with this, right. you know, this. And obviously, he was such a part of American cinema, but it's important to note, of course, that he was uh, from Romania. Um, and was a Jewish, Romanian mm-hmm. Jewish. Um, and that, that being just kind of uh, implicit part of his persona um, of saying like, oh, well, the uh, that a Romanian Jew um, would be leading, the, is, the, is the agent in charge here mm-hmm. to deal with this problem is kind of an implicitness I find that's important to this movie too. I mean, he has a very American name, Wilson. Yeah. Like, you know, but... Uh, that that's a whole part a of this point. too, I think. Uh, why, why do you think this movie um, is not as well remembered as I think a lot of it, as far as within Wales's filmography, I think a lot of it has to do with you just think about his forties, how they yeah. went. Like Susan Kane, of course, was such a huge movie when it came out. Um, yeah, but it was more of this like debatable talking point back and forth. I think you know later on it rightfully so got its place as one of the great movies of all time and continues to be the magnificent ambersons is primarily defined by that the version that exists is uh not as quote as good or as profound as a initial early versions of that some said it was even greater than citizen kane then even what we're going to get into later with lady from shanghai is so gonzo and so memorable in its own way that the stranger kind of appears in the middle of all these and I think due to partly its political context, but also just it's it's a little bit more of a sober movie stylistically, and so it doesn't have as many of the hallmarks that are. It feels like you could turn a corner. It feels like you could turn a corner somewhere, and you would be in "It's a Wonderful Life." Like it looks like yeah, that right. same kind of America. So it's very much like but that, why, why yeah. do you think this just isn't? I mean, it's generally well liked, but it's not as fondly remembered. To some extent, I think some it's of these other the movies. sobriety of the movie. Yeah. I think it's just so dark and serious about what it's saying about America, and even the implication of the time by saying, "Oh well, okay, well he just happened to come here," and it's like, well, really, it's about how easy fascism is to take root anywhere, um, and that America was a version of that in the first place, and that really only by association that we went with Britain any into the war in France rather than genuine attitudes that were very clearly and concisely expressed by American citizens in the late 30s. Um, yeah. And, you know, so 
that I think that's all too complex for people to care about. But I think it's just a movie that kind of slipped under the radar for all that. Um, yeah. And and to speak this is kind of off topic, but speak briefly back about Magnificent Ambersons. I wonder how great that version actually was compared to, as we said, the way people viewed Citizen Kane at the time and saying, oh, this is even better right, than Citizen Kane. It's right. like, but was it actually, or was it that you felt that then? I wonder about yeah, that sometimes. I think that's true. About what is Just the, the real Just the legend and the myth that. of that has grown right. over the years, but yeah. I think that context is important. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, you watch the movie, and it's clear it's like a bigger, like a generational story, and it's it's very, like, uh, very Tom Wolfe-like, uh, or Thomas Wolfe, yeah. rather, sorry. Um, yeah, it always gets confusing. You're, Tom, the, you're the second Tom, person yeah. this week I've talked to about yeah. Tom Wolf who made that uh, right. understandable. Yes. Uh, Sorry. Yeah, well, yeah. I know who both of them are, yeah. but yeah, but yeah, that Thomas a very Thomas Wolfian like yeah. uh, uh, early Amer- early 20th century American family story of highs and lows and you know that sort of thing, and and so a lot of people are more interested in that I think inherently than what Susan Kane is, but. Uh, Citizen Kane yeah. also represented like, you know, it's not a noir exactly, but it has a lot of noirish elements and was a yeah. huge influence on noir. And then obviously, Magnificent Emerson's is something a little different. Uh, and then this represents really his first true for, foray into noir, um, as it was developing during this time period. Of certainly, Lady from Shanghai is an even later version of that. Um, what for you though is kind of the legacy or biggest takeaway you can categorize the stranger with in terms of what it represents for noir, but also this period of classic Hollywood and even maybe for Wells's career as well. Uh, well, it's one of the few movies. I mean, I still feel stupid. I haven't seen the best years of our lives in total yet, but those kind of—it's just crazy to me how movies were made so quickly back then, and the and the 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 thought process and the and the and the of politics and movies and all that was just so expedient and so quick and that because we had genius and i mean that's the difference between now and then is that uh studios and people talk as bad as they want about studios back then but studios actually had faith in genuine producers writers and directors to make things that were art that was something they were concerned with mm-hmm. so i think that's the major difference because it's like well, what changed about people are people not smarter now than they were then well ultimately not i don't think but also but there's enough smart people out there making movies so it's like well, what's the difference and the difference is that the studios are not allowing those people to take full control like they used to because we talk about the 50s and or the 60s and 70s is the you know new hollywood is the auteur era but I think that sometimes is to negate the fact that they really did let writers, especially, um, and actors and filmmakers, to say, "I want you, okay, you do this thing." Well, and, so they made right. so much, they made so many movies right. that I think the risk per movie was less than. Yes, yeah, so they're like, okay, yeah, do whatever you want to do, or they'd they'd bring on whoever to write a couple lines of this, and then okay, move on, and and you know, and we saw that go into the. But I mean, some of the best periods also, of this, uh, the late '40s, were from those directors who came uh-huh. back. Whether it be Frank Capra finally coming back mm-hmm. to America and doing "It's a Wonderful Life," uh, he actually mostly spent most of his time in D.C. in the war, but made those "Why We Fight" movies. George Stevens, George Stevens, yeah. but also even John Huston comes back right. and does tre- "Treasure of the Sierra Madre." I mean, yeah. um, William Wyler doing "Best, best Years of Our Lives." Life. So they all came back with these different perspectives, mm-hmm. and I think you know. 
and I say this as a massive fan of It's a Wonderful Life. It's actually grown on me more and more. That is among the more glass-half-full versions of post-war uh, America because a lot of these movies are pretty dark in terms of their... Uh, you saw that with Samuel Fuller also, some of his early movies and going into the 50s as far as yeah, movies he would make. And he was a little, more in, a little more independent than those, but he still made movies for big studios. But yeah. But so I think The Stranger represents a, a joyful... Uh, joyful is a weird way to describe it. But like a, a pleasant... Um, square peg in a round hole in terms yeah. of it just represents among by this point among the most political films that wells had made um and also definitely just that it's a it's a noir that is not afraid to tell some very harsh truths about america in terms of the complicity with nazism and the complicity complicity of fascism and also again of wells willing to portray himself as the very problem in terms of the character that he represents mm-hmm. so I think this movie. I think this movie has a decent shot at being one of the most underrated movies of the '40s, which is saying a yeah. lot because there's tons of great movies uh-huh. in the '40s. But I think you know, as a noir, it's kind of slept on, and certainly as a, a '40s Orson Welles movie, it's not as immediately big or iconic as some of the other ones. Of course, Citizen yeah. Kane is truly yeah. his greatest film, I think, in a lot of ways, and one of the greatest films of all time. But this represents a little something different. And it's weirdly not as ambitious, but in terms of stylistically speaking, but in terms of the harsh truths, it's very ambitious. That's, yeah. You know, communicating. Yeah, and I guess to leave it, just to, to, we've talked a lot about the scene that you used last week, but I keep thinking about that scene of it's like, it's like an Andy Hardy movie gets dead effing serious. You know, it's like yeah. very like, oh, like, uh, you know, this idea of, oh, they've got like, of, oh, everybody's sitting at the dinner table, and then it's like, oh well, uh, what do you, what do you think about this whole uh, Germany thing? And then it's like literally one of the masterminds of the Holocaust sitting right there yeah, with right. you, and like saying and saying what you kind of saying both what you want to hear, but also telling you what the German really thinks about this yeah. that you're sitting and eating and talking about, like, and how what a what a sham he thinks all of America really is, and and. And I find that to be just very disturbing and kind of just the, I guess, the the uh, the contrast of the, like, of the the dinner table, of all just the people at the dinner table, and that conversation, I think, is is yeah. what the movie's really all about. Earlier, it was before or after the paper chase was going on, too. A classic oh, 1940s so uh, yeah, it's game. Like, that, and that's funny how that becomes a plot point of, like, hiding a murder is yeah. like the paper chase that was going yeah. on like but yeah anyway so that does it for the stranger but up next here is the trailer of the lady from shanghai husband can take care of himself. Nice night for it, ain't it, Mr. O'Hara? You didn't answer me, Mr. O'Hara. You ought to speak when you're spoken to. I'd hate to have to report you to the lady's husband. I said it's a nice night for it. Hey, Mike, if you'll pardon me this intrusion, there's a couple of police officers out here. Cops. 
I don't speak their language, see? And they want me to identify this guy. What's the Spanish for drunken bum? Mrs. Bannister, can you think of any reason why your husband would want to hire a divorce detective other than to watch you? I object! As a matter of fact, you and Michael O'Hara have kissed each other, haven't you? To name one occasion, you were seen in the aquarium of this city kissing each other. Do you deny that? No. No further questions. So they're that lady from Shanghai, you mm -hmm. know. One of the most evocative titles, I think, for a noir immediately yeah. goes, wait, what? what, what I mean, the lady this very much is a, is, a, is a poster child for noir, I think, in a lot of ways. Uh, and, the, yeah, the title really goes along with that. But uh, The Wikipedia page is not giving me the best description ever for it, so let me just really quick. Because <laughs> they're like, oh, we don't know. Uh, something <laughs> happens. Some uh, people were there. One time. So this movie came out in... Did you know uh, about that? 1947, I think partially in France, and in 1948. It's kind of funny that this is uh, this is the description for the movie on yeah. the letterbox. A romantic drifter gets caught between a corrupt tycoon and his voluptuous wife. Uh, so this movie, again, is wackadoodle, is crazy. Um, I think literally if you had to like pick five prototypical noirs and movies that represent types of noirs, I think this would actually be one of the five I pick in terms of just stylistically how gonzo it is and also how it fits into a lot of larger genre tropes and aspects. In real how about this. that, Lava? Yeah. And again, this movie was not really all that liked when it came out, but over the years, uh, cinephiles have kind of flocked to it as... You know, a prominent, uh, underrated Wales entry in his filmography. Uh, the movie's actually even uncredited, technically, is directed by Wales. But if you notice at the uh, at the beginning, it said um, produced and written by Orson Wales right before the movie starts, so it doesn't even say directed by. Wow! So I think he had like. some um, um, problems over the course of the production with the studio, okay. which was Columbia. Uh, and another thing is too, I'll say I think RKO technically made um, uh, The Stranger, I believe. Yeah. Uh, this was made by Columbia. You can tell it has a little bit more of a budget oh, behind yeah. it in yeah. terms of visually how it looks. Well, also it's important to note that as great as The Stranger is, and as great as the Blu-ray that was made for it is, it being a uh, public domain movie, the the prints of it are not as good looking as this is because this has been restored a lot over the years, and that hasn't. So yeah, yeah. So we'll go through the cast fairly quickly here. Rita Hayworth as Elsa or Rosalie Bannister. Uh, singing voice was dubbed by Anita Kurt Ellis, though. So uh, when I think of Rita Hayworth and when I think of noir, I think first and foremost of Gilda, uh, which is a movie yeah, you know that's itself that has its own flaws, uh -huh. but is um, very memorable in terms of as a noir centerpiece. She represents in this the like. The femme fatale, the guy. Had a femme fatale. She's uh, married to Everett Sloan as uh, Arthur Bannister, who's, of course, 
been in other There's Wells not things. One day, I don't think about that girl, uh, as he said in Citizen Kane. Most but, memorably yeah. in Citizen Kane, um, Mr. Kane was very yeah. You know how he talks. About it, but. but I think Rita Hayworth, in terms of the femme fatale blonde bombshell uh, archetype in noir is again one of the reasons Mm -hmm. she's most remembered is how memorable she is in this um i think she's terrific in terms of this morally ambiguous character yeah i mean she's not really asked to perform much because that's kind of how all these femme fatales really are is because it's just all they just have to be there and Mm kind of look dangerous and that's you know about all they have to do um but yeah i mean i think she's effective so. Wells plays uh, Michael O'Hara and uh, his Irish accent, yeah. very, very strong in his this. His Irish brogue. Yeah. But. What do you think of him in this? Uh, so weird. I mean, because normally you think of him in, in just his regular voice, you know. And, yeah. uh, but uh, I'm not sure of what, what is his, uh, from what stock does he originate? Are you sure? It says Irish sailor. No, no, I'm talking about him. Oh, oh actual Orson Wells himself. Yeah. Um. Let's see. It probably is like Irish or something. Uh, Wisconsin's where he's from, I think. But on his Wikipedia page, I don't think it's really saying immediately who, what, what you know, what his mm, ethnicity okay. is or whatnot. Yeah. So I'm not anyway, sure. I, I would assume there's probably he's probably uh, from the Isles somewhere, somewhere there. Yeah, yeah the British of some sort. Uh. <laughs> it's he probably like, delighted like Ireland, Britain, whatever. Yeah. And it's like, did you know they're not very happy yeah. with each other most days? Um, but, but I mean, yeah. uh, he probably reveled in doing the accent in this because he's obviously yeah. with a theatrical background, so he probably loved. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I kind of love it, but mm-hmm. I don't know if it's always good, you uh-huh. know. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it's. But he uh, plays the like classic, like, oh, I'm just a drifter and I have this shadowy past and I'm from Ireland, but I was also involved in the. The Spanish Civil War yeah. on the side of the, the Republic. Very Republican, grand guns you know? to Ethiopia. Yeah. Right. yeah, I mean... So he just uh, represents like, oh, yeah. he he's a stand-in for a guy that could have been involved in many conflicts. He's like a more loser version of Rick from Casablanca right. in terms yeah. of being a drifter but not really being successful yeah. in any meaningful yeah, way. But the, yeah, that's the funny thing about his whole character is he, he puts on like that. Like, I mean, because there's points in the movie where he's just straight up fighting people, like mm-hmm. getting in fist fights and stuff. But, like, other than that, he's an incredibly unsuccessful human being in mm-hmm. every respect. Like, yeah. I mean, and, and I feel like there have been versions of that before this in noir. Um, I mean, Detour, literally a few years before, was a big version of that. Uh but uh, the, I feel like this was the first major version of it I can think of of like just a total failure of mm-hmm. a noir lead. Um, yeah. And that always being implied most of the time. And or, we know that his own decisions are going to lead to his own self-destruction. Right, because normally, normally before that, you had seen all these detective movies where it's like, even if they're morally ambiguous, they usually have to be successful because they're the law. Yeah. Like, you know, and so there's, there's some... Or adjacent form, to the law. Right, there's yeah. some form of justice that has to be served. Yeah. Um. That normally, I said in this is not a, not a priority whatsoever because he's not even actually a detective or anybody. In the law. Same yeah. thing with the guy in Detour. Um. And so it's easier to do that. I feel like eventually though it was they did that with you know private eyes and and detectives and and police. But um, I feel like a good version of that's Glenn Ford in The Big Heat too. Who's mm-hmm. this very like just volatile individual in a lot of ways. Um. But uh that 
in this also, I mean, I think he really works as what he is, but yeah, it, it's, uh, I say it's just a very different kind of yeah. character for this time. Don't you think as we're getting into Everett Sloan here and kind of talking well, about Well, real quick, this, oh, well, go ahead. Uh, Wells and Rita Hayworth were famously married mm-hmm. uh, throughout most of the 40s. This was in the midst of the dissolution of their marriage and when they were about, basically about to get divorced. And so there is a tragic element to that that plays out on screen in terms of these doomed lovers. A tragic comedy element, wouldn't yeah. you say? Yeah. But yeah. yeah again, these uh, what about lovers. that doom lover? Um, <laughs> don't you think, by the way, before right before we get to Everett Sloan, I never thought about this until watching it this time because I'd seen this movie in college just the once and then saw it again now. Uh, don't you think there's like some like version of the master that was inspired by yes. this because it's like very much like getting on a boat to go to yeah. Where you know, and that it was you went to San Francisco and went to New York instead. It's the opposite trip here. Mm-hmm. But this idea of oh, on this boat with this guy that you don't really know, and then his wife's there, and is the wife really running things? It's like I know that's yeah. about different things and about totally different relationships. Um, but I feel like there's no, some I, I seed there. I was thinking about uh, that a little bit. Yeah, uh, taking a slow boat to China and around my way too. Yeah, uh, that, but, yeah. But um, yeah, I, I think there's there's definitely all um, to myself. Alone. Uh, and I know, I don't remember specifically the influences he named when doing the master. I remember one of them was, um, well, that documentary John Houston did. Let There Be Light. Uh, Let There Be Light was yeah. one. And I know that I think he said multiple times that his favorite movie ever, well, years ago he said it was Network, but PTA said was um, Treasures uh, of the Sierra Madre. And there's some elements of that in the master too. So I definitely think there's a lot of these movies from the 40s that were probably on his mind when he was writing and constructing that yeah. and I think this probably was definitely one right. of them anyways but so um, I think that's true yeah. but Everett, Everett Sloan, Sloan yeah. as Arthur Bannister total I think we're all just like Ugh, she's married to him like he's just well, such he's a like, squeak. He, and, he's this lawyer he's basically this criminal lawyer who also is like d- disabled he's like got like uh, uh, canes that he walks around with all the time yeah uh, and so in that way, I feel like that's almost just for the ending of the movie. Just to yeah. like have that look of that yeah. is so weird. Um, but and it, yeah. but I think it's like implicitly it's like he's not even a full man. Right. And yeah. uh, Orson Welles' Orson character Wells represents... Is, uh, Orson Welles is a brogue. Michael, like, yeah. Michael O'Hara Michael represents O'Hara, uh, the brogue. And yeah. then um, just to go through some of these other people real quick, Glenn Anders is George Grimm. I want to Grisby. talk about him for a while. Here uh, a minute, yeah. Ted DeCorsia is Sidney uh, Broom. Erskine Sanford as the judge. Gus Schilling is Goldie Goldfish. Carl Franklin, one of the great names, as District Attorney Galloway. It says that um, Errol Flynn is uh, uncredited as man in background outside of Cantina. What? Also. have been right. Give us uh, your uh, Glenn Anders take, though. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. Who did you say? Errol Flynn. Errol says, Flynn. Yes, man in background outside of Cantina. He was, like, credited. dead. No, he he uh, he lived until uh, 59. Oh, he lived that old. Yeah. Oh, okay. I thought he died. He okay. Lived, uh, until 1959. Oh, all right. He probably literally yeah. was hanging out on set and right. was, like, yeah. barely in a shot or something. Yeah. But you know, What was your not, question? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, give us your take on Glenn Anders as George Grisby. Oh, my Grisby. God. It's so the like, heart of the kind of conspiracy. Uh, yeah, so, so, so yeah, to speak a little, because we haven't even really talked about what the like plot of this movie is, is like so insane. So, like, basically, from what I remember, and you correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I think it's literally that he's like, wants to fake his own death. Grisby. Yeah. Yeah. So that then he can put it all on... 
Everett Bannister. Van Sloan. Yeah, Everett Bannister, yeah. Arthur Bannister, Arthur yeah. Bannister. For whatever reason, I think it was... Well, that's what he's he telling He works under him, him now, right? right. And well, they're yeah. like partners or something. Yeah. And like, but then it turns out he was actually doing that so that then he could have somebody else be killed or something. And then I don't remember, but basically it ends up where he gets killed actually. And it, but he was wanting to get Michael O'Hara to help yeah. him with that. And then basically just set him, I think he was going to set him up basically. Mm-hmm. And there's somehow money was involved in all this. I don't remember yeah. what it was. But then, yeah, eventually he actually gets killed instead, and then there's a whole trial against him yeah. about that. Uh, He's just such a weird uh, yeah, Oh, yeah, but this Grimsby guy, yeah. literally, like, everything he does is the weirdest thing. Ever. Like, there's that scene that I think you used last week where he's like, that's good too, Arthur. And, like, yeah. literally the way he talks, and he's like, one of the weirdest moments in the movie is so Wellesian, like, where she's like, can you like my cigarette? It's like... Him like Everett Van Sloan's talking, and then it cuts away, and it's like he's still talking during this. Mm-hmm. Like a first version of overlapping dialogue. Yeah. Um, and she's like, "Can you light my cigarette?" To him, he's like, "I haven't got a match." Like, and yeah. it, it just everything he does is so weird. And then something that we've just been obsessed with. The first thing we'll talk about, and then the major one we'll get to next. I was just looking. No, you go ahead and say what. I'm just looking at some other things he's in. One of my class already favorite titles ever. Nancy goes to Rio. Oh yeah, a movie he was in in 1950. Need to see that. Uh, Tarzan's Peril. Uh, The 1951 version of M, Mm. uh, which was directed by Joseph Losey. I think that's how you say his name. Of course, a remake of the Fritz Lang movie. And in 1951, he was in a movie called Behave Yourself, also. Mm. It, mostly comedies, it looks like, but yeah, he's in this, and he definitely brings a comedic right. element, as you were saying. Yeah, because like... Yeah, it's just so strange. And also, but, I think just the fact that there's any kind of conspiracy coming from this guy shows you it's doomed to fail oh, yeah, instantly. Oh, yeah. There's, you know... But, because there's the moment that we've been obsessed with, we'll go ahead and put the video in here, but of uh, he's like, well, I'll just, we'll let it play for a second. We're literally, he's like, here's to crime, yeah. and then drinks this beer, and the music's playing, he's like, Duh. <laughs> like, and, like, and then it just cuts back to Orson Welles, and he's just like looking at yeah. him like, like he wants to laugh, kind of, yeah. and it's like, and... And that's what's so strange about the whole movie is like the Orson Welles character acts the whole time like he can't escape from this situation. Yeah, so right. like, you can get off on any port you want to. Yeah, that's the beauty like, of being a like, drifter is you can yeah, immediately walk right. away. But he's so in love with right. uh, Rita Hayworth's character yeah. that he just can't do it. It's just hilarious to me. He just won't give it up. And then the piece de resistance of this character, though, is him telling him, I'm going to pay you $5,000 to do this thing. And he's like, what? And this is and this is what happens. So long, fella. Kill me. So long, fella. Like, <laughs> and it's treated as this moment like he's he's yeah. gonna die or something's right. happening, but yeah. he's really just walking away. He's just, he's just like, well, it's weird because he's like walking out of the frame, but then the music goes crazy, and it's yeah. like the shot's already weird because you couldn't see it, obviously. But or he's like, it's kind of above him, and he's like got his face angled up, and yeah. his hair's all messed up, and it's just such a weird yeah. moment in general. But yeah, like. 
yeah, like you said, any movie that bets the farm on this guy to be <laughs> the mastermind. You know right. it's going to fail miserably, yeah. yeah. But I think that's part of the central joke of the movie. And you know, and that's yeah. the extent to which I want to get into the style of this movie because it's got some of the most memorable stylistic moments in noir, whether it be, of course, the Hall of Mirrors scene at the end, which, is a, which actually just this last week was referenced a lot on film Twitter um, due to um, some shot that was in a recent movie or TV show that involved mirrors. I can't even remember what it was. Um, oh, this Moon Knight. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, right. That, in reference to that. And then, but also the aquarium scene, which I had kind of forgotten about, but is often talked about of this very strange meeting between um, Wells and Hayworth in an aquarium and these like octopuses in their right. big shadows casting. Right. And it's one of the weirdest kind of settings in a noir movie, but I think, yeah. you know, it almost feels like something ripped out of a Batman the Animated Series episode. Um, you know, obviously Batman the Animated Series would be more inspired by this than the opposite, right. obviously. But, um, again, it just has such a weird gonzo style, especially in comparison to The Stranger. What, what do you take away from kind of the, the style of this movie and then also how seriously we're expected to take the narrative itself? Well, and that and that is, I think, what makes the movie work is that, thankfully, the narrative isn't too complicated. I mean, it's crazy and it's weird. Yeah. I'm just not remembering all the details right now in my head, but I don't feel like it well, it's makes it's definitely these... got a much more involved plot even yeah. than The Stranger had. Right, but but as far as compared to something like The Big Sleep, it's at least makes enough sense. It's not like it's incomprehensible. Yeah. Um. But yeah, it is all about the style. I mean, it's about the aquarium. It's about the ending of the movie. Yeah. It's about which I mean, because the ending of the movie is literally it's like that's what it's all about. And it's about it that tension of it. these people shouldn't want each other, but right. they are attracted, and it, and it's just gonna bring about ruin for all right. of them. You know that whole mentality. Of yeah, that and idea. so. Uh, because, like I said, the whole ending is almost to get like four or five different images on the same screen of Everett Van Everett Van Sloan or Everett Sloan. I say yep. Everett Van Sloan. <laughs> uh, Everett Sloan walking with like crutches mm-hmm. in like a hall of mirrors, like and and just the some of the image the imagery of that. I mean, like that's like some of the most surreal imagery in any movie up to that point, I think, of other than some you know, so there's some movies that were made during the silent era that are like, what is this? But yeah. Um in like a Hollywood pretty mainstream movie, mm-hmm. um, that was big. So um things that like I said Hitchcock was um messing around with but ultimately would do more, I think, in the late for into the into the fifties. Um which is interesting because Hitchcock and Wells are that Wells always had these weird things to say about Hitchcock that is very well, critical. Wells of Hitchcock, had a lot like, of critical things to say about right. a lot of people from Igmar Bergman to yeah. Hitchcock to right. just practically a lot of his own contemporaries. He yeah. had some. Well, I think for. that I think he also saw Hitchcock as a version of himself that he was far more successful it and made a more, way more movies and a popular version of him that. A lot of people, you know, a lot of people didn't like it. He famously said about Vertigo that it's even worse than Rear Window, um, which <laughs> which is, means is. which is true in the inverse. It's even better than Rear Window. Rear yeah. Rear Window. Wheel Window. Wheel Window with my favorite movie, <laughs> uh, Tham I Am. I don't know, uh, but 
so long, fella. Uh, yeah, but ultimately... Uh, but I think, yeah. you know, again, I think The Stranger, in comparing these two movies, The Stranger is far more what I like in my jam. Mm-hmm. But what I do love about The Lady from Shanghai is just how crazy it is and just how, like, over the top and how, in a good way, preposterous it is comparison yeah. to this. And, I, and again, this is one of those movies... The Lady from Shanghai's kind of general box office failure and Wells souring with the studio. The beginning of the end of him in Hollywood long yeah. term before he went to Europe. Now he later came back to Hollywood some, but then went back to Europe. So, and so in that way, it's it's kind of unfortunate. Obviously, as you said earlier, that he he didn't make more things here in Hollywood. But again, I think The Lady from Shanghai represents him and his most like Gonzo noir in terms of just how wild and crazy the movie is um, yeah any other thoughts about lady from shanghai no it, it, it i liked it more this time just because i focused a lot more on just how weird the movie is yeah. and and appreciated that more than like all the like plot mechanics and and just kind of like what is going on like i feel like those seeing this for the first time was very much like a shock to the system just like and coming off of like it, admittedly also that was I don't think I had seen any other Orson Welles movies at that point other than Citizen Kane. Mm. Um, and so coming off of that to that, it's kind of just like, I don't know what to do with this. It's like, but now having seen a lot more of his movies since then, I, it feels easier to place it where it needs to be, I feel like, in his kind of milieu. Yeah. But, yeah. So that about does it for this episode of Overlapping Dialogues, One Time Noir Vimper. Here's, but... to, here's to crime. <laughs> <laughs> but... <laughs> Jeff Probst, what have we got next week? Stay tuned for scenes from our next episode. You know how people die? Yeah. Why? And then after they die, they, they go to heaven? I guess, if, if, if they're good. <laughs> I mean, why not? You know how it works in heaven? Not exactly. It's probability and outcome. Probability and outcome? Probability and outcome. We never knew that. Yeah, well... Let's say there's a probability that some guy's gonna die. Well, what happens is an escort from the guy's way station gets a signal and he goes down and he has to wait for the outcome. You see? Now, if the guy lives, the escort wasted a trip. But if the guy dies, he picks him up and he takes him right back up to his way station and he puts him in line for, you know, his, his final destination. You follow me? Yeah. Hey, do you mind if I smoke? No, go ahead. Now, let's say there's a new escort. See, he's really raw. He gets a signal, he takes off, and he sees a guy say, Riding a bicycle into a tunnel, all right? The car's coming the other way, and the escort, he's supposed to wait for the outcome. But this guy's new, and he figures, well, the guy's a goner. He's sure that that's going to happen. So he figures, well, why should I just make him sit there and have the car hit him, you know? Well, why don't I just take him out of there a few seconds early and take him right back up to his way station? Listen, I uh, uh, need a match. Uh, that clock over there, that's, uh, that's a lighter. So the thing is, the guy he takes up to the way station... He's not just some ordinary guy. He's an athlete with fantastic reflexes. And it turns out he wouldn't have hit the car at all. You see? How do you like it? it, 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 it. Now, the guy wasn't really dead. You understand? His number wasn't up for years. He would have missed the car. No kidding. Yeah. Hey, look at the time. Is this lighter right? I don't think so. Max, do you see what I'm saying? They're supposed to put him back in his body. But they can't because he's been cremated. So what they have to do is find another body to put him in. I'm just a trainer. I mean, what you need is, well, like a really good doctor. Are you sure he's part of your gene pool, Charlie? Shit.
Bit alert, bit alert, everybody. What about the expectations of coaching a team like this in a community like this? Well, I guess there's always a surprise or two in every community. Ball, just concentrate on hanging on the ball. Both hands, okay? Hey, Both hands. That's Johnny. all. Hey, come here, come here. What's the problem? Get off the field, Dad. Why can't you hold on to the football? It's so goddamn hard about holding on to it. I'm sorry. All you got to do is hold on to the goddamn football, and you can't do it. Tell me why you can't do it. Just tell me. That's all I want to know. I'll try better next time. Come on. Hey. Don't you walk away from me. Don't you walk away from me when I'm talking to you. You hear me? Tell me why you can't hold on to the ball. Enough. Come on. Mr. Billy, Tell me. Me. answer a question. It's the first day of practice, Mr. Billy. You better wait. Hold on. Seriously. Mr. Billy. God damn. Enough. Charlie. Okay. Embarrassing me out here. Okay. Jesus Christ. All right, John. That's all right, don't worry about it. Here we go. Yeah. Slot right, 38. Hey, Billy Lee, you ain't got to worry about holding on to the ball, man. Why is that? Because you ain't going to get the ball. Your job is to be blocking for Boobie. I don't care if your daddy is over there crying. You can talk. Shut up, do you? Our team's been playing with each other for a long time, and uh, we got the brotherhood part of it down. Quite the pairing here. Are you ready for some football? <laughs> Heaven, Here, here's the football. <laughs> Heaven can wait from 1978 yeah. and Friday Night Lights from 2004. Very different movies. Uh, it's you know, pick, Warren, it's Warren Beatty and Buck season. Henry and Peter Berg. Yeah, you know? <laughs> what a trio. Yeah. Um, one of them wrote The Graduate. The other was Buck Henry. I don't know what that means. Um, <laughs> that really makes uh, no sense. So again, this these movies are in the height of pigskin season, and when this movie and when these uh episodes dropping it will actually be black friday so right after thanksgiving so after you've uh you've gone high on the hog or should i say the turkey by that point we thought you know we haven't really done any sports movies on here this would be a good chance to do that now these are very different sports movies and i would argue heaven can wait's kind of secondarily a sports movie because yeah. it's primarily a romantic comedy um we'll start with heaven can wait of course from 1978 I think I've said this in the past. We've never done a Warren Beatty movie, I don't think, formally. Warren Beatty's my favorite actor ever. Mm-hmm. I love him. Even just re-watching the clip, I was so immersed in his performance style. And, and Jack Warden, too. And I love Jack yeah. Warden, too. And Jack Warden is also had a re- yeah, really not... great role in Shampoo and, yeah. and even had a small role in Bullworth. And so yeah. he's worked with... I think you need to get a doctor. I don't know. <laughs> Beatty multiple <laughs> yeah. times. Um, this movie's about basically a, a football star or second string football player who was killed. Yeah, I was going to say football star. Kind of funny. Um, but but yeah. actually, he wasn't supposed to die until much later in his life. And so it's one of these kind of cosmic supernatural mix-ups. And that was something that was going on in some movies in the 30s and 40s. This movie is in of itself a remake of Here Comes Mr. Jordan, which I've seen. Um, I like fine enough. I don't like nearly as much as this movie but even something like a matter of life and death which we're both huge fans of which kind of involved this supernatural element and about him kind of swapping bodies with this eccentric millionaire who also you know he basically buys the football team so then he tries to get in shape so he can play on the and football they're all team just like think he's just this crazy like vain uh Rich guy, you know, light warm baby. Yeah. Um. No. <laughs> You're so um, vain. I mean, I mean, yeah. he's like, you probably think as long as about you, he's like, it was. <laughs> um. But uh, yeah. The uh, what's so funny about that too is then he has all this random baggage that's going on about like trying to like the, Charles Grodin and his wife trying to kill him. 
and like all this random stuff and going he's, on. And he, he's in love with uh, Julie Christie in the right. movie, and this is the third of um, three movies that Beatty made with Julie Christie. Yeah. Um, and, and they uh, also yeah. were this similar to Wells and Reed Hayworth, this romance that lasted for most of the 70s. Um, they made, of course, McCabe, Mrs. Miller, uh, Shampoo, yeah. and this. All three of those movies are terrific in mm-hmm. different ways. Um, but again, I, I think they are they are just two of the most beautiful people in any era of movies. Mm-hmm. And so to see them together, it's like this attraction that, of course, bouncing off each other. Um, I love a lot of Warren Beatty movies. Uh, again, he's my favorite actor. This is probably actually my favorite movie from him, ultimately. Weirdly, because it also is not quite as cynical and political. Yeah. And although I love those movies from him, it's actually among his most heartfelt and straightforward movies. What's not great, only of this yeah. era, but in the, throughout his What's career. What's great about a movie like, I don't think Parallax View fits into this because he just acted in that anyway, and that's an Alan J. Pakula movie. So it's taking the politics of that movie yeah. and putting that to the side. As far as even a movie like Shampoo, his whole performance and persona elevates the cynicism of that movie to make it, and it is very cynical, and it ends very cynically. Mm-hmm. Um but that gives that movie a life, his whole persona that it easily could not have. Um, and and so, yeah, in this, like, for example, one of my favorite scenes, another thing I was going to mention is when he's like, has to go to the boardroom meetings as the guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he's like... I almost, well, yeah. actually was going to pick yeah. this And he almost this, like, scene. he's like, well, why don't we just like do this? Yeah. And they're all like... And then, well, he also, yeah. before that, he like invites the media to come in and yeah, listen. Like, oh, and they're yeah, all yeah, like, whatever. wait, what, why are they in here? Right. And, then, like, and he's like, oh, no, it's all right, whatever. Yeah. He's like, He's like, uh, because that's normal to him as a football player, just have the media there too, yeah. I guess. And he's like, yeah. he's like, oh yeah, just do like the best thing for the environment. You know? Yeah. And they're like, <laughs> excuse me, yeah. like, you know. And it's like that's just one of the funniest things where he's just like, you can tell he so doesn't care. Right. He just wants to go play football. Yeah, and he's right. like, oh, let's get this over with real yeah. quick. And, like, <laughs> and like picks the best possible scenarios he can do, and just like, and then another thing too is where. He doesn't even care about the affair that Charles Grodin and the guy's wife are having with yeah, each right. other. Because he really he and, don't like her anyway. Right, so and he's, like, yeah, he's just like, oh yeah, whatever. And they're like trying to kill him the whole movie. And he's like so oblivious to that. Mm-hmm. And just like, oh yeah, whatever, I don't care. And then that makes him want to kill him even more because they're like, oh, he's up to something. We gotta yeah. do it. And it just really is a comedy of errors, a very specific kind of movie that I think is the best exemplification of his uh, personality um, I think this and Bullworth randomly because that's mm-hmm. another movie where he's just like doesn't care. And again, and, what I really love yeah. about Warren Beatty is that he was as handsome as he was. Yeah. Yet, almost all of his greatest roles are like screw ups or like tripping over themselves in some way. And again, he's casting himself at the lead of all these movies and is a producer, or director, and just his ability to like make fun of himself despite being kind of a vain movie star at the same time is just such a weird yeah. contradiction to well, me. Well, and a version of that with Reds, too, I think, is that that's his version of himself, that kind of character of, like, this hapless idealism and just, like, oh, yeah, I'll put myself out there in these situations, what John Reed mm-hmm. ultimately really was. But also that idea of even that, of, like, the whole randomness of the beginning of that movie is Jack Nicholson is Eugene O'Neill, which I still just thinking yeah. about all the time is just like what and i mm-hmm. feel like we need a whole movie of that anyway yeah um but that uh, he's not in a whole whole lot right. of it but he's terrific in what he's yeah in. and that like 
even that as a reflection of of Beatty's John Reed and his persona in that is he's even being competed with by Eugene O'Neill played by Jack Nicholson mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for this woman and how he wins out because he's who he is and he's a genius in his own way and and even though he you know was always gone and always being an activist somewhere was far more interesting and lovable to her than to uh um uh, Dan Keaton's yeah. uh character than than he than yeah. Eugene O'Neill was but but the, yeah even that is its own it's not a comedy version of that but it's like its own version of this desperation and his kind of uh kind of uh what's the word uh clueless persona kind of yeah. you know of uh, that he always kind of lands on his feet in his way or whatever. and i feel like we but, i mean i really yeah. feel like it's like cary grant if cary grant didn't have it together as well yeah. like as far as his persona as an actor and i feel like we've not really had an actor feel that role before or since Real, really i, I like a, your flavor yeah like, yeah I mean, I feel like somebody like yeah. Steve Martin is mm-hmm. like more explicitly a comedic right. actor, and like a lot of his most famous roles, you think of him in like The Jerk, like or Man with Two Brains, some of those Carl Reiner movies where he's just a total buffoon and idiot. Where Merv but, Griffin uh, is a serial killer, yeah. <laughs> I about that. But like, but yeah. I feel like Steve Martin weirdly comes to mind as somebody who's kind of sort of yeah. did a version of that, but like. I don't know. Just which of the Pickwick triplets did it? Kind of thing. <laughs> uh, yeah. But again, I just love Beatty so yeah, much, and yeah. I, and again, I love so many of his movies, and a lot of his movies are among my favorites. But this is probably my all-time favorite. And again, I think it's also just it's got really well-shot sports scenes in it, which yeah. uh, mm-hmm. you know of the L.A. Rams, yeah, the yeah. Los Angeles Rams in the late seventies. Friday Night Lights, very different movie stylistically. Oh yeah, I forgot uh, we had another movie we yeah. had to get to. <laughs> so Friday Night Lights, yeah. that's from two thousand four. Right. Now you've yeah. actually seen the TV show. Well, oh, good. some parts of it. I watched yeah. quite a bit of the first season, and it was really good. I just didn't ever finish uh, it. But. Now that show has become so big that mm. a lot of people even forget that there was a movie made. Well, there's a there's, book. Well, the book yeah. came first, and then the movie. But the show's legacy is the biggest thing. I feel like at this point that's remembered. Um, now I've not read the book. Uh, I knew some people in my life who had and really swear by it and love it. But I think this movie is really good. It's directed by Peter Berg, who has not really made any other movie that I think of as fondly as this. He did um, direct some of the earliest episodes of The Leftovers. Yeah. And that does have some of his stylistic truth. Yeah, I feel to like it. that whole show is kind of in its own way. You know, they say that about any showrunner at the beginning or first director kind of determines the look. Set and, the standard. And yeah, visual. it is very much a yeah. Peter Berg thing. Uh, Friday Night Lights, I think, is one of the best movies about uh, high school football in terms of it is an all-consuming experience. The Persian Panthers, I think that was the name of the team in that, um, are, Persian. yeah, in, somewhere <laughs> in Texas. Um, you know, literally, I think it, they say this like early on. It's like when it's like when it's Friday night in the fall – in Texas, boys of fall. Like moment. I mean, this is the yeah, pre, you know, preemptive boys of fall moment. Uh, that th- it just takes over and is all yeah. consuming. And again, I don't think it's quite as strong here in Western North Carolina. However, it is definitely something that dominates it and is, takes yeah. over attention. Not to the extent it even is in other parts of the country. Exactly. Well, it's a sense of hope. It's yeah. it's weird. It's something that even the NFL doesn't get. It's almost like it's like what they talk about. They call the show in baseball. It's like everybody. It's always the getting to the show, and then after that, it's like it doesn't mm-hmm. mean anything anymore. Almost like, but it, it's this. Yeah, and it's not something that I feed off of like other people do. But I see the 
the appeal. I mean, it's like what it's really one of the great taglines in anything I've ever seen. This is different because it's college football, but I saw it again today. It was showing college football commercials, and it's called the greatest story ever played. And it's kind of that idea of like, and you even look at the poster of this movie, and it's like the three guys from behind walking on the field. It looks like this like Greek opera. It's yeah. like this like I'm not even saying that to be like joke. It's like it's like this is life. Yeah. <laughs> it's like. And in that way, it's like it's like this, it's like this this event, um, this very almost like primal. Um, I feel like Norman Mailer talking yeah. about the Rumble in the Jungle now, yeah. but but like um, <laughs> about him talking. Levi's about the, reading currently the, reading the Armies yeah, of the Night. So, uh, so but what he was talking about, what he was talking about the whatever the stadium was that they used yeah. was talking about. Well, they executed a bunch of like political prisoners, and he's like the blood was. Under the floor yeah, and yeah. like and like the warrior trial <laughs> and like all this stuff. It's it's kind of like that, but hopefully they didn't do that in Texas, um, or anywhere. But yeah. you know, um, but yeah, like they're. I feel like that show gets to that, but I would love to see a cinematic version of that. I feel like it would be even more ripe mm-hmm. for that idea of I want to actually what that means. You and, know, one of the more memorable for me, Billy Bob Thornton roles. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's the lead as the coach in the movie and it also has some um some actors that are bigger now some not so much in terms of the younger teenagers yeah. in the movie garrett headland he's kind of uh plays one of the kids tim mcgraw actually to me is one of the most memorable aspects of this movie he i never seen what he looked because you that, talk about him all the time in this movie i never seen what he looked like and then i saw him and i about want to put my this, head in my hand like oh my god this he's guy basically like, this abusive yeah. dad who used to play football too and he's always like in his son's face, like you're not taking it seriously right. enough. You need yeah. you need to make this your life, and he's just like lay off or whatever. And um, again, I know this is based partially on a true story, which was very rich, and obviously the book was made out of it. But again, I think this movie is a really pretty solid representation of high school football and how for a lot of communities across the United States, it just takes over to the extent yeah. to which it's almost just. Um, that everything else about school, what you know, should be important, it just takes a total backseat. Yeah. To well, that's that a bit. Is. I mean, that's obviously a really big part of the show, um, and how that's my favorite scenes is when somebody is giving Kyle Chandler advice, and he's like, "It's <laughs> not," like, yeah, and he's like, "I'll kick your ass," basically, <laughs> like you know, in a version of that. But yeah, literally any that and that's what made that show so intoxicating to me to watch was him as the coach lead yeah, right. is always being like, "You're not going to do this on my team," yeah, like, you know, <laughs> so and, intense, right? And this whole attitude. And then you go look up. I tried. This is really going off topic, but I tried looking up scenes from that show on YouTube, and it was literally like six out of like the twelve videos that had to have been that I looked at real quickly yeah. were like, he finds this person in bed with this person. Yeah. It was like a million scenes of that. And it's like, what happens on the show where he's constantly finding kids in bed with other kids? It's like, and now like, that's affecting the team or whatever. Yeah. And like half of the, uh, half of the thumbnails of even that were him like looking at him like, you need to understand something, son. Like, oh, yeah. attitude. And I'm just like, I'm so fascinated by that. So I want to get back to watching that show one of these days. Um, but, yeah, like I said, I'm really excited to watch this movie because I feel like it's it'll be a good primer to even get back into that and also to say, let's make this as cinematic as we can rather than it be just a TV show version mm-hmm. of this. Like, let's ramp up the drama right. of this. 
um because there were a lot of these types of movies made around this time remember the titans was a big movie that a lot of people talked about for years i mean that was just massive and then even after this we are marshall around that time mm-hmm. uh and i've seen that quite a few times it's a middle school we've classic. Ta- well i've talked about yeah. that movie ad nauseum i feel like on here and about like what is going on with Ian mcshane yeah, in that yeah. movie like, like and you know davis theron also like lots of questions um but see, I'm excited to see this one. To see, also, I think Bill Bob Thornton would make a good coach in this. So yeah. We'll see how that goes. Master stage is no gravy. So again, by the time you're going to be listening to that episode, it's going to be Thanksgiving already. So, and we'll have all that, all that, all that turkey gobbled. It'd be up. interesting to think about a L.A. Thanksgiving. You know, because mm-hmm. like there's the L.A. Christmas. We've seen that enough in different things, but the L.A. Thanksgiving, we saw that in the Doors. Don't forget. Mm. <laughs> yeah hopefully you will have a happy thanksgiving that does not uh end in uh, jim morrison kicking a turkey around uh you know or maybe does if that's what you're into hey stranger things have happened this is kyle this is levi take care god bless talking with orson wells i guess i just can't get over that childhood of yours the little scraps i've read about it uh, sitting at tables at your age with people who were well uh, in other countries, for one thing, but sometimes world leaders, I suppose. Or were there any world leaders? Oh, yes. Uh, the, the, the world leader that, uh, that, that uh, really came to nothing, as far as my memory is concerned, was Hitler. Uh, I, I was uh, being escorted. This, I went twice through the, through the Tyrol and uh, Austria and German uh, hiking country, once mm-hmm. with a with one teacher and once with another, and one of the, the two teachers was, it turned out, a, a, a sort of a budding Nazi. And there was a big Nazi rally in near Innsbruck. In the days when the Nazis were just a, a very comical kind of minority party of nuts that nobody took seriously at all, mm-hmm. except my hiking companion, this uh, gentleman in his knapsack, and he wangled a place at the table with the great men of this tiny little party of cranks. And uh, I remember very well afterwards, uh, Stryker was the leader of the big anti-Semitic campaigns and uh, uh, two or three other well-known people to this day. The man sitting next to me was Hitler. And I, he made so little impression on me that I can't remember a second of it. Gee. He had no personality whatsoever. Wonder if under he hip- was invisible. I wonder if under hypnosis it would come out. Do you, it- no, I think there was nothing there uh-huh. that anybody would remember. Did you had 5,000 people yelling, Sieg Heil, yeah. Heil Hitler. That's the whole point of the story, that there wasn't anything to remember. What about those films that were made about him by Leni Riefenstahl? Pretty Is good it- films. Are they, 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 you often hear that they're- They are awfully play- well made, yes. Is she alive? Yes. Have you met her? No, I haven't met yeah. her. But she's living, I think, in England or some place like that, and yeah. and uh, hustling around trying to get, uh, you know, to flog a documentary here and there, yeah. on almost any subject. <laughs> Interesting thing. I never met Stalin. I would. Uh, I never met Stalin, but mm-hmm. uh, uh, I, Roosevelt, I knew very well, and Churchill, and lots of. During childhood and then youth, of course, yeah. I was very lucky, in that respect. What age were you when you were orphaned? Well, my mother died when I was uh, six and, uh, no, seven. And my yeah. father died when I was uh, 15. 
beginning of my 15th birthday. Then I ran away, tried to stay out of school, out of Harvard. I had a scholarship and mm -hmm. desperate not to be educated, I, I went into the theater. I, I, I made it, I wasn't educated. What if you, what if you uh, were now? I mean, what if you wanted to go to school? What, do you have any idea what you want to study now? Yeah, that's a good question, everything, I guess. But yeah. if I wanted to be a, to study seriously, you know, and get good at a subject, I think mm -hmm. it would be anthropology. Don't you think right. that's a fascinating subject? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know, maybe I would too, I don't know. Or maybe philosophy. I, I never yeah. thought about it very much. I, I'm suspicious of philosophy. I have a real Philistine yeah. doubt about its worth, you know, but anthropo anthropology seems to me to be just at its beginnings. Yeah. And philosophy kind of at its end. Who else stands out from that? That time in your life when uh, what, what faces come to mind? Uh, yeah, well, you mean famous ones? Sure, or infamous. Yes, or, uh, not yeah. famous or any of that. Well, we had Schickel Gruber, but uh, yeah. I, you know, you 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 know, you know, wonderful people that uh, that aren't famous. I, I guess one of the most remarkable people I ever knew was somebody called Cornelia Lunt, and Alfred Lunt used to pretend to be her cousin. They weren't related at all. They loved each other. And uh, she was, when I knew her, in uh, her middle 90s, and had been a hostess of great importance, although very young, in the Civil War in America, and knew intimately all the great names of the Civil War. I could tell you all about what Lincoln said and what my great-grandfather Gideon Wells said, who was Secretary of Navy in the Cabinet. And, she was a great kind of raconteur on the Civil War. And then she went over to London, where she was at the American Embassy, and where she knew everybody in uh, England. All those fabulous people that seemed to have been dead for 200 years, you know, in the Victorian yeah. age. Yeah. And uh, it was, you could only get her to tell about these things with great difficulty. She didn't go on and on like I do. You had to, had to drag it out of her, and she was right. delicious. She was an old lady who, when she gave a big party, sat on a little stool, and she gave you a big chair. If you can imagine an old lady like that. She was very beautiful. Must have been not so beautiful when she was young, but one of those people that old age glorifies. And she had a little bell. And when she wanted everybody to be quiet so she could say something, she'd ring her bell. <laughs> And then we'd all be quiet, and she'd make her little statement, then ring it again, and everybody mm -hmm. could talk again. <laughs> and and uh, she's one of the great people I've known, you know? As great, certainly, as, uh, as Churchill or Roosevelt or George Marshall. And I suppose Marshall is the greatest man I ever met. Really? Yes, I would think so. What, what would you admire what, about him above everybody else? Human being. Mm -hmm. I think he's the, he's the greatest human being who was also a great man who I was ever mm. privileged to meet. Have you known some that were... Can I tell a little story about him? Certainly. We'd been campaigning for Roosevelt, not George Marshall, but some of the rest of us, and one of our rewards when he got in again, one of those many times that he did, was to go to a big party of very big brass and sit on the dais and be treated as though we were part of the high command, just for one night. And there were all these tremendous names from the Second World War. Two or three civilians, Truman, 
the vice president, who was playing the piano. We were rather embarrassed about that because uh, uh, he didn't seem to be awfully good on the piano. <laughs> and we didn't know that he was going to be a great president, you see. I see. And it didn't look as though he did either. <laughs> but he and my said, so there were only about four or five civilians, all the rest were tremendous brass dripping with gold, braid, and medals, and everything else. And it was in the Mayflower Hotel in Washington. And a door opened. And a GI, more innocent looking than anything you could possibly imagine, and younger than anything you could dream of, stuck his head in. At the moment when General Marshall happened to look toward the door, and the boy looked at him, he said, gee, General Marshall, can I come in and say hello to you? Marshall said, yeah, come in. And Marshall didn't know anybody was watching. This wasn't a grandstand play. I was in a position, my camera was angled, so he didn't know he was getting photographed in anybody's film of memory. Yeah. And he took the boy aside, away from everybody, and sat down with him. And I heard as he went that the boy had been away from home. And, was, and the boy recognized Marshall as somebody like a family. Now, this was the commander of the, all the Allied forces. And he sat with this boy without any grandstanding at all and just put him at ease and made him feel at home again for half an hour and left all the rest of us. He was that kind of fellow. I wonder what the difference is between a man like that and the ones who are impressive publicly but couldn't be bothered to talk to anyone that isn't important to them or flattering. Well, I, I don't know. Those, those kind of people are all second rate who can't be bothered at all, ever. Yeah. But there are those who can't be bothered sometimes. You know, and that's, you had a feeling with Marshall that if it were possible to be bothered, he would let himself be bothered. Yeah. He was a tremendous gentleman, you know, mm -hmm. an old-fashioned institution which isn't with us anymore. Okay. You almost never want to ask anyone the question who's impressed you the most, and it's, it's wonderful yeah. to have a guest who can give you the answer. Well, I never do know the like answers that. to those kind of They're questions, hard, you know, but I just yeah. happened to know that one. Yeah. Of course, I was immensely impressed with Churchill and... Sure. and uh, uh, and, but, but he was quite another thing, you know. He, was, uh, he had great humor and great irony. He went to see me when I played Othello on the stage in London, and I heard a low murmuring in the front row. I thought he was talking to himself, and then he came backstage afterwards and sat down in the dressing room and said, Most potent, grave, and reverend seniors, my most approved good masters, and began the whole of Othello's part, which he had memorized, and uh, including the cuts which I had made, <laughs> which he read with a good deal of extra emphasis. Mm -hmm. And then uh, <laughs> a few years afterwards, I happened to be in Venice trying to get some money for a movie during the festival, and poor Churchill had been, right after the war, as you know, crest of the greatest victory that any single man had ever presided over in modern history was voted out of office. Quite properly, probably, but it was a tragic blow for him. And there he was in the hotel uh, at the Lido with uh, Clemmy, his wife, alone. And he'd go swimming out on the beach. And one day at lunch, I came in with a Russian businessman. I was trying to hustle for some money for this picture. <laughs> and as we passed Mr. Churchill's table, Mr. Churchill saw me and made that little gesture, and the Russian went out of his mind. 
this is a white Russian, not a red Russian. This is a, this is a, you know, a hustling semi-Armenian Russian. And uh, when he saw that Mr. Churchill not only knew me, but gave a rather special acknowledgement, it was clear to me that I had the money for my picture. <laughs> so the next morning I was out swimming in the beach and I, and I found myself paddling in the water right next to Mr. Churchill. And I hadn't gone up to speak to him, but there we were in the water and uh, I had known him on and off during the war in a humble capacity and I said, uh, uh, Mr. and he had come backstage to see me and I said, Mr. Churchill, I think you ought to know what you did for me. And I told him about how this acknowledgement had meant so much to me with my financier. Mm -hmm. And that day at lunch, I came in with the financier again, and Mr. Churchill rose from his chair and bowed.